Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to the Silvertown Pod- Podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And this morning, we have 10 seconds at a time. Good morning, 10. Good morning, Drifter. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a beautiful, sunny day here in Florida. So hopefully you have good weather there too. <laughs> oh, it's going to be like in the high 90s, I'm sure today. Yeah, yeah. Arizona. So you're all the way across the country, coast to coast right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's been awesome just seeing how many people from all over the world are involved in this and the IAS community. It's It's like constantly blowing my mind. It's really neat. I was looking the other day, there was 17 countries. Wow. Yeah. Even in the India, I was like, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It doesn't discriminate. That's for sure. Alcohol doesn't. Nope. No, it's everywhere. And um, it's killing 3 million people a year. Oh, yeah. I hadn't looked up the actual statistic, but that sounds right, which is really scary. Yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, I, I think it's killing more people than COVID. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But it's legal. I mean, they're not giving you, they're not zipping up your mouth. Right. They're trying to give you more friggin' alcohol. Okay, so you're gonna tell us your story. Yeah, so I'll do like the basics first. Um, today is day, well, it's six months and three days since. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Hitting six months was really cool because for a long time I. I looked at people around that milestone and was just like, that's impossible. Like, how did they do that? You know? And, um, I, I'm in the younger crowd because I I guess in most of the community I've found so far, I feel like most people are older than me. Um, we are. Yeah. (laughs) My birthday's at the end of this month and I'll be 33. Um, but I, I had a very, like, I don't know if you've listened to Annie Grace much, but she talks about Um, how some people have like a really intense dive into drinking and some people just have like a slow decline you know I was like a head first like belly flop into the pool kind of drinker (laughs) Um, but I guess I guess I'll kind of go like chronologically because I've listened to all of the podcasts so far like I was just telling you so um, everyone has their own way I do have like notes here I actually was really glad to hear that rags was using notes because (laughs) I was like all right how does everyone remember what to say this is crazy Um, yeah so I'm an only child Uh, my mom had me when she was 34 years old Uh, she'd had a previous marriage before she married my dad and it was a really ugly like abusive type marriage and um she needed like a good couple years to just find herself again after that before she started to enter into anything else and um I'm really glad she did because I feel like like a lot of women especially back in that time this was like uh would have been the the seven like late 70s early 80s um they kind of rush from one into the other because it's very kind of push that you need a partner to like be a successful woman, you know, but no, she took her time and then she met my dad. And um, even then she wasn't sure that she wanted kids. (laughs) She kind of, uh, they, they took a, let's leave it up to the universe approach and just let's see what happens. And so um, they got married and on their honeymoon, 
uh, boom, my mom got pregnant. So they were like, oh, the universe wants us to have a Molly. <laughs> so here I am. And um, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. And so I like I like that story because like I know a lot of people, they have that like urge to be a mom or that urge to be a parent, like from the very beginning. And my parents were just kind of like, let's see what happens. And, you know, that's a valid approach to life, too. And I, I like that I came out of that. Um, so when I when I was born, I was the first kid in like in my immediate family. Um, I had other siblings, but they were like out of state and I I didn't really um, not siblings, but like cousins. I don't have any like brothers or sisters. But um, so what that meant was that uh, until I was 10 years old, I wasn't around any other children my age at home. Um, I only got interaction with kids at school and like, you know, at my extracurricular activities and stuff. So it was kind of like I was living a double life. Like I, I would, you know, go have my playtime and my kid time. But when I was at home, it was always people way older than me. And um, I think that I remember being like confused a lot when I was a kid, because whenever we had family gatherings, I was pretty much the only kid there. And I would just be constantly wondering like, what are they talking about? Like, how, what, <laughs> how are they laughing at this? Why is that funny? Like, what is that thing they're saying? And I just, I, because I was so young and I didn't grasp what was going on. I wanted just to always ask questions and always figure out like, why are they saying that? Why is this? So um, most of my, my memories of like early childhood gatherings, like family stuff is just me being confused. <laughs> and wanting to uh, find out what was happening. Um, I do remember, as I'm pretty sure, like is very typical of most family gatherings, um, like everyone usually had drinks, um, beer, wine, you know, cocktails, all that stuff. And uh, I, it wasn't really something I noticed when I was a kid. Um, I just knew that it was a very present part of life. And um, I actually had an uncle that worked for Anheuser-Busch, the brewery. And so he, his, whenever we would go to his house, uh, it would be decked out with everything like Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch, you know? So that was, that was a big part of my life. Um, in that regard, I was always exposed to it basically. Um, and there's, <laughs> to speaking of the confusion, um, there's one story that I don't, I don't really know why I remember this, but I was at, I think it was like a Christmas or a Thanksgiving party. It was at my aunt's house and all of my mom's siblings were there. She's one of five. Um, and there, I don't even know how this got started, but my uncle um, thought it would be funny to kind of like, I think I was six or seven at the time, but he thought it would be funny to kind of like pretend that this dog food that my aunt had for her dog was like a treat for me. Like, cause I don't know, I don't know how or why this got in his head, but he's like, Hey Molly, come over here. Like I have something funny for you. You know, I have something good. You should try this. You know, it's, it's really tasty. And I was like, Oh, okay, sure. Like this is my uncle. I should do what he says. I'm a kid, you know? And so I literally like, he, I guess he didn't think I would actually take it. He thought it would figure out that it was dog food. <laughs> But I took this like kernel of dog food and I just ate it. And I was sitting there thinking like, oh, well, this isn't that bad. And he immediately like was like, oh my gosh, spit that out. That's not actually food. But that just goes to show a little bit of like the confusion that I always had around people. I just couldn't really understand like why anyone would do that or anyway. So that was most of my, my 
family stuff was trying to figure things out. Um, I also had uh, kind of a big uprooting in my life when I was young. Um, right around the time I turned three, my me and my parents relocated from Missouri, which where I'm from, to California for about four, four and a half, five years. And that was because of my dad's job. And um, he was like the main breadwinner for the family. So um, I don't remember the move there because I was really young. But when we got to California, um, I was just old enough to start remembering things. And I, I eventually found my way to like a new school there and I made I had like a best friend for the first time in my life and we were really close we did everything together um her mom and my my mom and her yeah her mom and my mom became really best friends too and so we were always at each other's houses like we did everything together um she was really important to me she you know kind of helped define what it meant to have a friend for the first time in my life like a really good friend and um, when I was about six or seven, I don't remember the exact year, uh, but we had to move back to Missouri for my dad's job. And, you know, that was hard for me as a kid because like, she was like my number one friend. She was my best friend. And I had to eventually just say like, never know when I'll see you again. Bye. <laughs> you know? And so that, that kind of taught me at kind of an early age that like, like people are fleeting, um, you can, you can get really invested in someone and you can have this, you know, relationship with them, but they're, they're not always there. Like you, they might, they might leave your life somehow. So, um, I, not a lot of kids at that age, I don't think really understand that. And I kind of had to learn that lesson really early because we moved. Um, but it also made me really adaptable. <laughs> um, that's one thing that is carried into the rest of my life. Like I, I can set up shop and make a life for myself pretty much anywhere. Um, I don't need a lot. Like I know how to make pretty much any space in my life, my own and make it comfortable. Um, I did that a lot too. Once we got back to Missouri, uh, we moved quite a few times in a few years. Um, my family went through kind of a, a phase where they weren't making a lot of money. So we had to get kind of a questionable apartment in a questionable part of the city. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of really sketchy stuff going on around. So uh, obviously my parents didn't want us to stay there. And um, we eventually settled at um, a house in like a, a suburb outside the city where I spent most of my life. But it was, it was a lot of moving and a lot of readjusting when I was really young to get there. Um, my, this whole time, my mom, my mom was very much like the, the leader of the family, like my dad, while he, he would work and, you know, make the money. Well, most of the money, my mom worked as well, but, um, he was, he was the breadwinner. Um, she was kind of like the, the bread and butter, like the seams of the relationship and the family. And, uh, she, she very much wanted to teach me the value of gratitude and, um, you know, to like, for instance, if I were eating dinner and I didn't finish my plate, she'd be like, well, some kids don't even have dinner. Like you should, you know, you should eat the rest of your food because you're luckier than a lot of kids, you know, which is, which is really true. Like, I understand where she's coming from with that. Um, but it was, it was pretty much like a constant theme from her. And it, it kind of extended even into the way I felt about stuff. Like, 
if I had a bad day or if I was feeling bad, she's like, well, there are so many kids who have it worse than you. You know, your problems really aren't that big compared to a lot of people. And I know now <laughs> that she was doing that to try and instill like a, a gratefulness in me. But over time, that kind of led to me being like, well, I don't really deserve to feel bad about anything. Like someone's always going to have it worse than me. <laughs> and I, I kind of didn't realize how much I internalized that until I got much older and I started getting sober. It's amazing what comes out when you stop drinking and <laughs> you start thinking about things and you're like, Oh, that did matter. Oh my God. Like, wow. <laughs> you know? Um, so that, that kind of, um, that viewpoint really stuck with me for most of my life that, um, while I should be grateful, I couldn't, I tried to take it to the extreme most of the other times. So I, I felt bad anytime I felt bad about something. Like if I were sad, I'm like, I'm so stupid for feeling sad. Like, look at all this good in my life. Why do I still have negative emotions? This is dumb. Like I'm dumb for feeling sad, you know? So yours is like a catch 22, huh? Exactly. Yeah. You feel so, sad and then you feel sad from feeling sad. Right. Right. And this, this is going to be a recurring theme that ties into my drinking very heavily. And um, because what, what that taught me eventually was that, you know, unless I was constantly happy, I was like failing basically. So I didn't like negative emotions and negative emotions were because I was ungrateful or because I wasn't doing something right or because you know, I brought it on myself. And while there is something very important to be said for having like that internal locus of control, I don't know if you've heard like the external versus internal locus of control. Um, the external is people who tend to blame life and everything on their own actions, or sorry, like, they don't own what they've done basically. They're like, well, because so-and-so did this, I did this. So it's their fault. You know, that's like an external locus. Um, an internal is the opposite of that. It's like, well, I did this because of my own personal failures, basically. And I was like way too internal. <laughs> like I blamed everything on myself. I, I never once even accepted that someone could have had an influence on me because it was taught to me and reinforced that I am in control of my life and no one else is, which is in and of itself a very healthy thing <laughs> to think for a lot of people. But like anything else, if you take it to an extreme, it's kind of a detriment, um, which I very much did that. So <laughs> it became a detriment. And um, yeah, so we, we moved back to Missouri eventually, um, just after I turned seven. And so I had, like I said, I had to restart my life all over again there. And um, by this time, um, my parents had figured out that I was like statistically like testing and like reading at a higher level than most kids my age. So they they didn't want to send me to just like a generic public school. They're like, we have a kid who's considered quote unquote gifted. You know, they wanted to try and foster that in me, which to this day, I'm very grateful. Like every parents have their failures, but um they always were like all in with anything I was interested in with fostering like my gifts or things that I had an affinity towards. Um, they kind of stopped their whole life and they're like, all right, well you like this. So let's make sure you have all the access you can to this thing you like, so you can explore it fully, which is a really amazing thing for parents to do. And um, 
in that same vein, they sent me to, it's called a Montessori school. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Montessori education, but um, it's, it's kind of, I'm trying to think of a good word to describe it. It's, it's like an alternative to public school in the way it's not quite homeschooling and it's not public school. It's like in the middle. So it's very small, intimate classes. Um, I'm talking like probably 20 people in the whole school versus like a public school where you have like three or 400 in a big public school class, you know, grade level, you know? So, um, and that school was the best thing in the entire world for me. Um, they had to pay quite a bit for it at the time, but when they saw how much it was like bringing out the best in me, they were like, okay, of course, like you have to stay here. <laughs> and um, the, the things that it, made me appreciate are still very true to this day. Um, it was essentially situated in someone's old house. Like they had reconverted this ginormous like ranch style home on like 10 acres of land into a school. And so you had, you walked in the front door and it was essentially like being in a living room that had been repurposed for a classroom. And then you walk down the hall and there was a bathroom just like in the house. And then there was a kitchen just like in the house. And um, then there was like a backyard but the backyard was this enormous like um, wood woodsy type area, like a forest. And every year at the beginning of the year, they would have a camp out um, to kind of get all the kids to know each other, to bring the parents, you know, for the parents to know the parents, for the parents to know the teachers. And um, that was kind of like their opening day celebration. And um, that's how I got really interested in like nature and camping was from those campouts that we did. Cause it was just like the neatest thing. There was like this tent village that like, you know, all of your friends and your friends' parents were at and you could just get up in the middle of the night and be like outside. You felt, you felt like a little adventurer, you know? And, um, yeah, those were like some of the best years of my childhood was at that school. It was it was everything I needed at the time and it was really neat. And um, they also really were attentive to things that you, you showed affinity for. Like, I feel like a lot of, you know, public schools and middle schools, they, they kind of just lump you into just the category and you're basically a number, you know, for like state testing, but like Mount, like this, the intimacy of the Montessori school was um, a lot different. And so what I did, I figured out that I, I was really good at drawing. Um, I also, <laughs> I also really started loving video games around this time. Um, I was the generation that grew up with Pokemon and uh, it, it came out at the perfect time for me. I was like eight when the very first game came out and there was nothing cooler than Pokemon when you were an eight-year-old. <laughs> it was like the, the best shit ever. And um, I started just to try and draw different Pokemon, basically. I was like, well, that's, that's a cool one. Let me see if I can recreate it over here. And I found out I was really good at it, like really good at it. Like my teacher noticed, uh, my friends noticed and my parents started noticing and they're like, wow, like you, you might have something here, you know? So as I got older, I kept practicing. And once I got into high school, I, I turned it into like a side business. I was doing um, portraits for like of people's family, um, sometimes their pets, um, sometimes both like pets and family. And um, pretty much instead of getting my first job, I just did portraits all the time um, of people. And that 
it was it was really cool to do that as like a 14 year old because there's not a lot of other like 14 13 14 year olds that can do that but it also ended up getting um really stressful and it it burnt me out on my gift like way too early like i had i had turned it into something that i did for my own enjoyment into a job and i i lost a lot of like my luster for it um, at a really young age so um, up until that point, I was like, you know, everyone wants to decide what they're going to do once they're out of high school and going into college. And I was like, I'm going to be an artist, duh. Like, of course, like, this is what <laughs> I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to go to graphic design school or go to art school. And I'm going to do this, this is going to be my life. Right. You know? And, um, once I found out what that was actually like and doing it on a professional full-time basis, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. So I kind of had to reinvent my whole idea for my future um, at that point. Um, and uh, also once, let me try and see where I'm at here chronologically. So this, I graduated high school in 2006. So um, I started high school in 2002 and um in 2005 was one of the worst years of my life. Uh, I, I had been going to regular, um, like, you know, physical checkups at my doctor. And, um, she, she was like, just doing her normal checking on me. And she was, uh, palpating my neck. There's cause you have a thyroid gland here and that's just part of her normal thing. And she was like doing that just to make sure it was all good. And she kind of got this look on her face that was like, hmm, like that doesn't feel right, you know? And, and so um, apparently there was like a, a lump on one side of my thyroid and she wasn't sure what it was. So um, I ended up, oh, and what's even scarier is right around this time also, my dad's brother um, was diagnosed, got sick and died of a very rare colon cancer in about a three month period. It was, it was like wow. a very, very quick decline. Um, and he went from like totally healthy, zero symptoms to like dead in three months. So our whole family was reeling over that in, in 2005. And then, <laughs> then I start my, you know, of course you're going to be extra paranoid when you have a family member die. And so then we find out I have this lump on my neck and uh, so, of course, my mom is freaking out and uh, I'm freaking out. And so I go and get an ultrasound done and the ultrasound is kind of inconclusive. They're not really sure uh, what it is. So um, the <laughs> the solution to that when you don't know what it is, is to stick a needle in it and take a sample. <laughs> so um, I was already, you know, 17 here and there and and just kind of trying to navigate life as a teenage girl, which is hard enough in and of itself and, and try and, you know, keep up good grades. But, um, on top of this, now I'm like, oh, I have to go through all of this testing to see if I have cancer. So I'm not going to die like my uncle, but, um, thankfully the testing, um, was they, it was not cancer, but it was precancerous. So, uh, they had caught it early enough to where they went in and just removed that half. I had surgery. They removed that half of my thyroid and took it out. And they were like, okay, like you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like nothing else is spread or anything like that. But um, that was a close call. That could have been a lot worse than it actually was. And um, that also kind of started 
my interest in medicine and healthcare because I was around a lot of doctors. I had a lot, like, you know, I had that procedure. They call it a fine needle aspiration when you um, get a sample like that. And I just remember laying on this table, like looking like the, the screen that the ultrasound tech had was right next to me. And um, that I'm not even joking. The needle they used was like eight inches long and it was like right in my neck. And it was like oh. the weirdest, the weirdest, like most terrifying <clears throat> feeling <laughs> to just have someone poking into your neck with an eight inch needle, you know? And, uh, but I don't know why, like that didn't, that didn't turn me off to the doctors at all. Like I just was like really grateful again, like my mom said, you know, always be grateful, always, you know, I was grateful that, you know, they had found it and, um, that everything was taken out and I was going to be okay. And also that year, um, I tore a ligament in my knee in high school in gym class (laughs) and, um, it was a bad year. It was 2000 and my, my aunt died that year. I'll get into that later. Um, so 2005 was a bad year and I, uh, I ended up having to go to the emergency room after I tore my, my ACL. I didn't know it was torn at the time. I just know I was in gym class and I snapped my knee the wrong way and it hurt like hell. And, um, ended up having to get an MRI to figure out what had happened. And the MRI tech that did my scan was the most coolest guy he honestly reminds me a lot of you drifter like he (laughs) he had the exact same kind of facial hair that you had and um I I, he was wearing a band I remember it like to this day he was wearing a bandana with like flames on it like biker style flames and he had like like just this air of like like comfort and really yeah there you go oh my god you actually have one (laughs) that is so funny it was very very close to that exactly yeah you could have been twins I swear um but because I was so curious and I'd already gone through this stuff with my thyroid um I was like can I can I see my scan like can I see what you know what you did and normally you're not supposed to do that with people um but he was like yeah sure kid come on back and he like showed me everything and I just was like like mind blown I thought that was the coolest shit so um in the middle of all of this like having to figure out what's wrong with me I was still like fascinated the entire time so uh I ended up having to have surgery on my knee as well and so they repaired it and I had to go through like six months or so of really intense physical therapy um because once you have surgery like your muscle atrophy is really bad it kind of like goes like and it doesn't work right unless you start to re redo it and um that that was a really important time in my life too because it taught me that um a lot of people are going through stuff that you might not see on the surface because like all of my friends and, and all my friends knew like the people I hung out with like oh yeah I'm gonna have to have surgery I'm gonna have to walk on crutches and stuff like that and you know um for a while I walked with a limp when I wasn't on crutches and, but like, you know, kids in high school are kind of merciless, you know, they're like, why are you limping? Like, why are you doing that? And, you know, it, it's, I became the person that, you know, I, I tried to learn from that because it felt like shit when people would try and single me out for, and I also had like this big scar on my neck for my thyroid surgery too. And, you know, people would notice that and point that out. And I just, I became very aware of how people said things and how they affected me. And I, I kind of 
tried to turn that around I'm like well I'm never going to be the person who makes someone feel like that like because it feels like shit (laughs) and so they they were bullying you yeah not I wouldn't say bullying it wasn't like an incessant thing but you know it they would come at you with questions that were geared towards making you feel like belittled you know like kind of like wow like that scar on your neck like that's weird what is that and like you know why are you limping and all this stuff and um, okay. It wasn't bullying. It would, they, they were just like, yeah, bringing yeah. notice to this. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But there was other times in my life when I was younger, mm. um, uh, when I hit puberty, I hit it really hard <laughs> and I went from like a stick of a little girl to just, I gained like 60 pounds in a year. And, um, I had acne really bad. Um, My skin was always really oily. Like everything that you could have your worst fear of when you hit puberty, like happened to me times 10. And so I I was already at that point kind of just scared of socializing because like I I, I was picked on then. Like there were times when, because I I was overweight, you know, and being an overweight young girl is like hell on earth when you're in school. And um I, that along with, you know, when I, when I had my surgeries, um, I had just kind of learned from all those experiences. Like I, it feels like shit to be like called out and made fun of and to be different, to be different. It like, is the number one thing. Like, I, I just really desperately wanted to fit in and be like all the other cool kids who everything just, I always was fascinated. It seemed to come so naturally to people that weren't me, like being popular, having friends. Like I I felt like I had to work 10 times harder than the average kid um, just to even have like a single friend. Um, And I did have friends. It's not that I was a loner, um, but my friends were kind of like the ones who didn't fit into any of the categories like we were like the ragtag group of misfits <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know <laughs> the ones who were the rejects of everyone else like that was me and all of us and uh but we I had a really good group of friends in in middle and high school I was really thankful another thing that was important to my group of friends at this time we we were all nerds too and uh we loved like you know, writing fan fiction and drawing, um, you know, little stories of our favorite characters from various things, like whether it was a video game or we were really into Lord of the Rings when it came out, the the movies, because uh, I was a freshman in high school um, right around that time. And we were we were hilarious. We would go see the movies in theaters like six or seven times and we would like beg our parents to take us there and <laughs> god bless our parents for putting up with all of our nerdiness but um but uh yeah so once I was done with high school um I know this is common for a lot of people but you know you all you all go to different places like most of my friends went to college like my parents had kind of instilled in me from the beginning like this is what you do. You go to high school, then you go to college, then you get a job, then you work the rest of your life. Like, and I know that that's not how it is for a lot of people. Like a lot of people go to trade schools or, you know, um, they just work right out of high school and that's what they do. And that's all fantastic. And like, whatever works for you, do it. But I was set very much on the high school, college job path. Um, and honestly, in high school, we, I didn't drink at all. Um, 
we actually took pride in our group of friends of making fun of people who thought they had to drink. <laughs> we were like, you guys are so lame. Like we can have fun without drinking. Why do you think you need to like ingest this gross stuff to have a party? Like we have tons of parties and we have just as much fun, which was true, but it just goes to show you, like, I, I didn't have any interest in any of that for a long time. Um, and I also like the the legal thing kind of impacted. I was a very like straight laced kind of wanting to do the right thing kind of kid. I never wanted to break the law. I wanted to, um, I was really obsessed with just like trying to do the best I could for my parents. Um, you know, I wanted to make them proud of me. I hated it when they were disappointed in me. Um, whenever I would get, you know, grades that weren't ideal, uh, they, they would tell, you know, they would tell me like, good job. They'd be like, but next time you probably should do better. But next time, you know, so it's not that they were like crazy hard on me or anything, but it was, they had high expectations. Let's just put it that way. And I didn't, I didn't want to mess with that in high school whatsoever. Um, but once I got to college and you know, you, you leave the comfort of your home, you start off, you, f you finally figure out who you are because you have to do everything for yourself. You know, I lived on campus for the first two years. Um, and I, I was, I originally roomed with um, two of my friends from high school. So I, I even kind of gave myself a buffer because there are three of us that decided to go and got into the same school. And so we're like, oh yeah, let's room together. It'll be fun. It's like high school only we're transitioning to college now. Um, but none of, they didn't want to drink either. None of us, we were, like I said, the nerdy misfit quiet type. So we weren't into partying or any of that. And, um, eventually though, uh, I got a roommate. Um, we were in like a, it's called a suite. So there were three rooms and two people each with like a common room and that's where we lived. So the three of us were there, but that meant we got random people like in addition to us. And I ended up getting one roommate who was like two years older than me. So she was of legal drinking age and she, um, she had her own group of friends that were also at the college and all of them were of legal drinking age or very close to it. And, uh, she kind of introduced me to the world of drinking and, um, it's just at the time it was just what you did you know college party atmosphere it was there no one questioned it whatsoever um it was kind of seen as something of a rite of passage of sorts like you have to you know get drunk and do this you have to have these stories to tell and these parties to go to and it's just it's just what you do when you're in college so um it was through this this friend that i ended up rooming with that i actually met my my first ever boyfriend I didn't date in high school either I didn't have any interest in romantic stuff um but once I got into college I met this guy and he was a little bit older than me like a year and a half and he was from her they went to high school together my roommate and him and uh he didn't drink either at the time um but what's funny is <laughs> is I, I also have been through like a huge faith journey. I'll, I'll go back into that later, but this entire time I'm in, I'm in high school and college, I'm very secular. Like I'm not, I'm not going to church. I don't practice any faiths whatsoever. I would usually call myself like, like an agnostic. I never wanted to say atheist because that felt too like firm. 
like two one and done type thing that was like a yes or no thing and I, I was always open to possibilities um but my my first boyfriend he was raised in a very like southern christian household and he went to a southern christian private school for two years before he went to a big public college and he was very chomping at the bit to get out of that atmosphere um he didn't like it he kind of felt forced into it um and I was kind of his corrupter. I was like, hey, come over here, join the atheist agnostic, you know, like, <laughs> like all that. Oh, yeah, that's BS. You don't need any of that in your life. Like, you know, you're you're better off without it. And I didn't I didn't try and influence him like that. But it was just a natural thing because he was so eager to step away from that part of his life. So um, I kind of just felt like I was like the the bad influence on him, you know, but, but ironically, it, it turned around and became the other way. Uh, because as we continued dating, um, he, he wanted to experiment with a lot more drugs and stuff than I did. Um, I got my very first professional job. I'll go into x-ray school here in a minute. But um, basically, by the time I was 21, I was working full time professionally. Um, and a lot of other people around me weren't. And my job involves like regular drug testing and um you, you're held to a higher standard than the general population because you're in healthcare and you're taking care of people and i could never do anything weed or molly or you know whatever everyone was into at the time and so uh he really wanted to like he was in an experimenting phase and i i didn't do any of that i i couldn't because i i had to maintain my career that was like always my very first priority um so my way of getting around that was like i'll just get drunk as hell like i'll just you know i'll i'll be the one who doesn't do any of that stuff but man i will drink and i will get really good at drinking so i can keep up with you guys you know because drinking's legal and this is fine i'm being a very successful professional person even if I'm getting blasted and puking like two or three nights a week, like it's fine. So, um, yeah, so we, we started dating when I was 19 and, um, he, like I said, he was my first everything, first boyfriend, first sex, first, all of that stuff. And, uh, I never really cared to be like a one and done type person in terms of like marriage and a relationship, but I thought it was a neat idea. <laughs> so I, I kind of just was going down that path and like, okay, I met this guy, like, you know, we're getting along really well. We have our, our group of friends intermingled. So like our lives were very, very tied together. Um, we hung out with the same people all the time and I got to know his family. And, um, but what I, I didn't really realize at the time was that a lot of the, the ways that, that he thought of women and a lot of the ways he thought of me were, not exactly healthy um he was of the mind that men are basically walking libidos and they want and deserve sex at any point at any time because they're men and if you're involved with a man you're pretty much obligated to give the man sex because it's a constant need he has um and me with zero experience uh around men whatsoever. Um, I was like, I guess this is just how it is. Like, this is how every relationship is like, okay. Like this mean, this is what it means to take care of your, 
your boyfriend. And so um, my first introduction to like fulfilling like an intimate part of a relationship was pretty much that I had to. <laughs> and if I didn't, I was failing. So um, anytime that I would want to slow down or, or not, you know, not give in to something that he wanted to do, uh, I was like pressured into it. Um, and you know, he, he always made the case. It's like, well, this is just, I'm a man. Like I need this from you. And also I should mention that, um, at this time I'm also on the birth control pill. It wasn't for, um, like not getting pregnant specifically. I had a lot of hormonal imbalances. Remember when I talked about puberty, how it hit me really hard. Yeah. It was because yeah, my estrogen and testosterone levels were just really wacky. And the way that my doctor fixed that was to put me on the birth control pill. It kind of regulated stuff like that. But, um, as I got older, obviously it functioned for its actual purpose, <laughs> but, um, what that also did, there's a huge array of side effects on the pill that I didn't know about. Um, but one of them is like decreased libido, you know, like just, and, and painful sex too. Like sometimes it could make it hurt for you, like due to the hormones, all that. And, um, I didn't really recognize that at the time, but that's exactly what was happening. Like it was because of the medication I was on and it didn't matter to him at all that I would, I would say, you know, I was uncomfortable or this hurts or can we not do this? It's, you know, so, and he didn't know either to be fair. Like we, he was, uh, I was his first of everything too. And his dad was kind of a very toxic person there. That whole family, I'm very glad I'm away from it now. Uh, but it was, it was kind of, uh, a cesspool of really unhealthy activity. I'll just put it that way. And, um, so anyway, I, I kept dating this guy throughout college. Um, and then, um, in 2008, so I would have been, I had just turned 20. Um, and you're still I drinking said, all this time too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All the time. Um, once I hit 21, it was, it started off like as like maybe a once a week thing, maybe like two or three times a month. Uh, but ever since then, it was just the, the frequency just steadily increased and the amount increased. And I quite honestly, Drifter, I cannot even tell you the number of times I have blacked out. It is, it's probably in the thousands, I would have to say, <laughs> at least in the very high hundreds. Um, because the way that we drank, uh, you weren't really drinking right unless you were blacked out or you were puking. Um, we, we took everything to very, very dangerous extremes, but we didn't know it was dangerous at the time. It was just, that's just what you did. This is, we're living our best lives. We're living on the edge. We're having a good time, you know, all that stuff. So, um, I, I had to throw a very large wrench into that, um, in 2008, because remember my fascination I had mentioned with like medical fields and the guy who did my MRI and the ultrasound and stuff. Well, I was trying to re-decide on what path I wanted to do for my career um, since art was out the window because I decided, you know, I got burnt out on that. So I, I was thinking of medical school at first. Um, I thought being a doctor would be really cool, uh, but I was, I looked very seriously into some programs um, after I completed all my gen eds. And um, I applied to one in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, it was a six-year combined undergrad med school program. 
So you were going to get out in six years, but normally took eight because you were going to go year round for those entire six years. And uh, when you came out, you were an MD and I applied to that. And um, I, I've always been really good at writing, like, like getting my point across with the written word. And I made like a killer entrance essay for this place. And I ended up getting into it. Um, they only accepted like 25 people a year and it was a really prestigious thing. And I didn't even have the best grades. Like my ACT score was only like 31. Um, my GPA in high school was like 3.6, you know, like it, 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 which is good, but like, we're talking people who like have straight A's and like maxed out their ACT. And so they, they wanted to let me in because I, I wrote this really impassioned essay about like what medicine means to me and how it affects me personally. And uh, I went and toured the school and um, I was all set to go. And I just, I still to this day can't decide what factor made me turn it down. Um, it was probably a combination of things. It was incredibly intimidating looking at six years year round of very intense school when you're that young. And it was going to cost like $250,000. And wow. I still think it is crazy that society asks 18 year olds to look at this huge financial commitment of going to college. It's like, I can't even decide that I'm doing that now. Like, <laughs> but we're asking like basically children still to like make this enormous like debt commitment. I don't know. It's just crazy. But anyway, I, um, I ended up turning it down and, um, hopefully they gave it to someone completely deserving who, you know, made a humongous, amazing life out of it. But, um, I knew I still wanted to do something medical related like that, that had completely taken over my interest. I should also mention that my dad, um, is a paramedic. He's retired now. Um, he eventually went into like the management side, um, once he got into like his fifties, um, but he, he was on an ambulance, like in the fray, in the shit for like 20 years. And, um, I always had memories when I was growing up, one of my, my best like memories as a kid is like when I would get to pick his brain about the shit he saw, like as a paramedic <laughs> and it was, he wouldn't tell me all the gory stories, you know, because I'm his kid and he didn't want to like blow my mind too hard. But like the things that he did tell me were like damn you know and actually to this day I still have um I have it hanging on my wall because when I moved into this house um I got a lot of memorabilia from my parents but he um he got this thing from the city of St. Louis which is where we were from um it's called the Phoenix Award and what the what that is for is if you get um a certain number of documented clinical life saves as a paramedic and they call it the Phoenix Award because you literally brought someone back from the dead as a paramedic. And he, he got one of these from the city because I think, I don't remember the number, but it was close to 10 people in one year that he directly saved their wow. life. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there were all these uh, like, like awards uh, gatherings that we would go to every year for like, not just him, but everyone else in the, uh, in his company, in the paramedic company. And I just thought like, that's amazing. Like my dad is a literal hero, like lifesaver, you know? And so I think that kind of helped shaped my 
my desire for medicine and healthcare because I, I was exposed very young to, you know, how important that was. And then, it, and then it became personal when I went through my, my cancer scare and my rehab with my knee and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I, I eventually researched some schools and I decided on radiography which is, you know, uh, x-ray, um, CT, all the MRI, ultrasound, all that stuff. So um, while I'm in this culture at, you know, living on campus um, with my boyfriend, with all of our friends, drinking all the time, um, I now have to move back home to St. Louis for two years to go to school because I applied for five schools. It's really hard to get in. And most people don't get in their first time. But one of the five that I applied to took me and it was the one in my hometown. Um, at a big level one trauma center hospital there. And so my parents were like, okay, well, you can move back home and go to school because my, where my parents lived was only like 20 minutes from the hospital. So like, you're gonna have to move back home and, and go to school, um, but you can't, I mean, you're not gonna be able to see your friends because they're down in Springfield. Springfield is like a three hour drive from where I lived in St. Louis. So um, it's not like I could just hop down there, you know, at the end of the day and go see my boyfriend or see my friends. So I had to very abruptly change pretty much everything about my life to start this school, um, move back home, give up the two years of independence that I had gained in my first two years of college, and then like be back under my parents' roof again. <laughs> it was it was a big change, but quite honestly, it was the biggest blessing I could have ever gotten. Because if I had tried to get through x-ray school, living the party life that I was on campus, I would have failed immediately. <laughs> I well, just, you kind of cleaned up when you went back uh, yeah, to your parents' house. I did. I did. Like I, that descent that I was taking was like really, really steep. And then it kind of leveled out there for the two years that I was in x-ray school, um, just out of sheer necessity, because the school that... <clears throat> um, the program, it's, it's, it's called a school, but it's essentially a full-time job. Um, you are, you're there 40 hours a week for two years. Um, you're given like a PTO bank, just like you are at any other job that you can schedule your days off or if you're sick. So is this at the trauma center? The, the hospital? Yeah. Yep. It's a, it's called, um, well, it's Mercy Hospital now in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And it's, yeah, it's, I think in so the you trained you trained right on the front lines. I did. Yes. Um, there, there really wasn't a better, but more jarring way to learn to do what I do. Um, and they warned us, they were like the, the dropout rate for, um, radiography school at this school was quite staggering. It was like 40% because I think people don't really know what they're getting into when they sign up to do this like I think they're going to be like oh yeah I take pretty pictures of bones and I push buttons you know but you didn't realize that bone sticking out of a leg while you uh-huh huh? uh-huh yeah and um <laughs> you don't really realize how how like up close and personal you are with the shittiest shit like you see everything and yeah. um I, my class was a a complete like uh, unicorn, like no one dropped out in my class, which is really rare. Um, I don't know why, I guess we all, but the class before me and the class after me, at least like 30 to 40% of the people dropped out. So um, because people just don't, they can't handle it. They don't know what, what it's all involved. So, uh, so yeah, I, I started this and um, 
usually on the every other weekend or so uh i would try because i was there monday through friday i would try and drive back to springfield the three-hour drive to go see my boyfriend and my friends and so um this very much created like a live for the weekend kind of culture um so friday night after i got out of school i just would hightail it down the highway um, as soon as we got there, like everyone would have drinks ready for me, <laughs> you know, and they'd be like, Molly's here. Okay. It's time to party. Woo. You know? And, um, it was essentially just, you know, drink Friday night, drink Saturday night, spend Sunday hungover and recovering and then going back to real life Monday morning, you know? And that's, that was essentially what I did for the entire two years I was in school. Um, also at, at this time, it, there was a huge rift in the life I was building for myself and the way my emotions were changing versus the, like my friends. Cause my friends were still very much in like carefree party college mode. Like your, your whole existence centers around just, you know, having fun and passing your classes. Like that's pretty much all you have to worry about. And I really didn't have an outlet to discuss the incredibly intense, crazy shit that I was seeing at school all the time. <laughs> um, I never wanted to be like the downer in my friend group. Cause when I would go see them, it was like a party. It was like a celebration. So the last thing I wanted to do was say like, Hey, can I talk about um, this really violent death I saw yesterday <laughs> you know you like you don't you don't want to be that person and and furthermore all of my friends were into like very different things like like the arts or you know film music and it, it just was a complete disconnect and um, right. I didn't I didn't have any way to express what I was going through or what I was seeing and um, I uh, I started to kind of, this is about the time I started to develop anxiety really bad. Um, I would have like really debilitating panic attacks just out of nowhere. And I know now that it's because I, I didn't have any way to understand and process like the trauma that I was seeing. And furthermore, um, again, back to that internal locus of control thing, I was like, if I'm feeling this way, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, if I'm feeling affected by this. I, it's something, it's my problem. I need to get tougher. I need to get a thicker skin. I need to just get over it. You know what I mean? So, um, drinking went from something really fun to do with my friends to an escape during this two year period. Um, cause you know, if you don't, I've learned in sobriety so far that if you don't like let stuff out and talk about it and you keep it bottled up and you just keep masking it with drinking, then it's going to come out in some way, shape or form. It's, and it's usually not going to be in a very good, healthy way. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, I felt really strongly about finishing school. Um, I don't really know why exactly I felt so strongly about it because like the things that I was thrown into and that jarred my world you would think that a sane person would be like wow I don't want to do this this is really intense and I don't want to see this or do this anymore but I I just I also innately understood how 
how important it was, like what a gift I was being given in order to be able to help these people, like in their absolute like emergency time of need, you know? Um, and that, that felt really important to me. And I just, I didn't want to lose that. I really wanted that to be something that I continued doing throughout the rest of my life. So, um, yeah. And so this whole time I'm still dating this guy, very first guy. And, uh, he, he's still living his life in college back in, you know, back in the town. And we, we didn't, we were really dumb about communicating, um, as I feel like a lot of young couples are like, we just kind of wanted everything to be a fun party and not really do any work to keep the relationship together, you know? <laughs> and, um, so as, as happens when you're partying a lot and you're mind altering a lot, um, there were many times where he would be like on Molly or Molly ecstasy. It's called Molly. I had a lot of people say like, Oh, your name's Molly. Like they tied that to the drug quite often. It was really funny, but, um, anyway, yeah. So he, he would like go to parties and like, like make out with random chicks. And, um, you know, I not, I mean, to be fair, when we were dating, like in college, like I made out with other guys, like when you're drunk and they're high, everything's just like a big mess of like feelings and emotions and music, you know? And so we don't, we never talked about it though. We never were like, is this okay? Like, are we allowed to do this? Does this make you uncomfortable? It was just like, yeah, party. And it was over time. It just, it led to a lot of like resentment and like weirdness and stuff. And, um, we, uh, didn't, we powered through that though, because, uh, once I got out of x-ray school, um, I got engaged to this guy and, um, and what's funny is we, we got engaged on a trip to Vegas. My parents, um, splurged and got me a trip to Vegas when I graduated from x-ray school. And, uh, I honestly barely remember his proposal to me because I was trashed and I'm pretty sure he was trashed too. Um, but I was excited. I'm like, I'm young and I have a boyfriend and I'm engaged now. Like this is, I'm living the life I'm done with school. Like I was on top of the world, you know? Um, and you know, so we, we started planning the wedding and stuff and, uh, around the same time, again, we're still drinking pretty much constantly, at least every weekend, if not a couple times during the week, um, around the same time, um, one of my my boyfriends or fiancés now, uh, one of his friends from high school who had been deployed in the army, um, got done with his deployment and he moved back into town with all the rest of us. And, uh, he, so he got a place close to where we lived and he slowly like integrated himself into our friend circle. We started hanging out. Um, and he, he was on the front lines literally at war. Like he was an infantryman and he, um, he had gone through some like PTSD recovery training. Um, he'd gone through some counseling, you know, before he was reintegrated into life and stuff, but he still had a lot of leftover, like, like traumatic issues from that. Um, understandably, like I, I see my own stuff in the ER, but like to be a soldier and to be deployed and see that stuff, that, that's a whole different kind of fucked up than, than I know. Um, but because I was so desperate for someone to talk to about like the fucked up things that I'd seen. Like I really bonded with this friend um, 
like he could finally unload on me like all of his stuff that he'd seen and I could unload on him and uh we like we we grew really close and we started becoming really good friends and um it was just a huge relief to have someone to talk to like because I I would try and talk to my fiance about it uh, all the time but he just I don't know like along with you know the the kind of toxic mindset of he deserved sex whenever he wanted. He also was kind of like girls, girls are dramatic. Girls are emotional. You know, um, if I wish girls could just kind of be quiet and like not let everything bother them so much, you know, like he was that kind of a person. And uh, so I, I grew up with him as my partner learning that the, the happier I was all the time and the less I voiced my my discomfort the better a partner I was because I wasn't creating drama that was his word he's like girls are so dramatic you know like I'm so glad you're not like other girls like you're not dramatic like other girls yeah so I, like I was saying drinking became a way to make myself happy all the time and only feel happiness because if I express discomfort if I showed sadness if I felt you know uncomfortable about anything anything ever really um that was me being dramatic and I should just shut up and get over it and be happy so what's really good at making you shut up and get over it and be happy alcohol yeah so um it, it, it's, we're at like a step three now. Step one was fun times with friends. Step two was an escape from reality. And now we're on step three, which is masking how you truly feel about stuff. So yeah, so back to this friend who had come back from the army. Um, he, like I said, he integrated into our friend group. And I, I, I remember one very one kind of really important moment that stuck out for me when I was, I think it was right towards the beginning of when I was in x-ray school. Um, this is something for like an example of what I was able to talk to him about that I couldn't really talk to anyone else about. Um, we, uh, we were assigned rooms um, based on our, our rotation for that week. Like in school, it was like one specialty, one week, another specialty, another week. And we were just kind of there as assistants until we learned how to do it ourselves. And there, there was a, a really sick patient in the room next to mine one day and uh, the patient ended up like coding, which is means that they got really sick. They stopped breathing. They lost their pulse. And um, my friend who was in the room next to me, like kind of ran out in a panic. And because I was the closest to her, uh, she was like, something's wrong, you know? So I go in there, I leave my room and I go in to help her. And then, of course, like all, all the other techs and all the nurses start rushing in. And um, this is the first time I've seen a code in progress. Like, I've, this is I've, the first time I've seen, like, active CPR being given, um, like an, an emergent intubation. Um, and I, I personally didn't do anything because, again, I was, like, three or four months into school. And I didn't have the skills yet to, to do any of that. But, um, you know, I, just just being around that and just knowing what's going on and facing like like death for the first time the guy ended up not making it um he he I think they tried working on him for about 20 minutes and then it it just didn't happen so 
Um, so that was the first time I'd seen something like that. And I was, you know, we were all kind of shell shocked, of course, and even the text, because we very rarely get actual codes in, in the radiology department. Like that means something has gone really wrong or someone declined really, really fast. And uh, so I had to leave that circumstance and next door in, in the room that I was doing was someone who is scheduled, like, like someone who had a scheduled appointment was like, you know, they're not healthy, but they're up and walking and talking and, um, because of what had happened next door, I was late in going to see this patient, like maybe 10 minutes or later. So, and she was pissed. She was like tearing me a new one about how late I was, you know, uh, just like how, how disrespectful it was, blah, blah, blah. And that was kind of my first introduction to how quickly you have to shift your emotional state as a healthcare provider, because like, I was still trying to process what the hell I had just seen with this guy dying over here. And now there's this lady yelling at me because she's 10 minutes late. And I just wanted to scream at her. I'm like, at least you're not dead, you know, right. <laughs> but right. you can't, you can't say that you have to put on your, I mean, I, you could say that you probably wouldn't last very long in your job, but, but, um, you know, it's, it's just that kind of dichotomy, that kind of weirdness that I couldn't really illustrate to a lot of people. So, um, so when I, when I was talking to this guy and getting to know him, it was like, like I said, it was really, really quite a relief. Um, he was also very good at drinking. I mean, he's in the army. They drink all the time. Um, he also smoked weed all the time and he, he had experimented with a lot of other, other stuff like Coke and, um, DMT, Molly, uh, K2. K2 was a really bad one for, it was like that fake weed stuff. I don't know if you've ever been around that, but it was like synthetic weed. It made you hallucinate like crazy for a couple minutes. But, um, I, again, I never did any of that. I was always the drunk babysitter. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so as, um, as my, my engagement and my marriage went on to my fiance, um, he, he became one of the best men at our wedding. And uh, there were several other people and it was all like mutual friends of ours. And um, uh, it, we had a great wedding. It was, it was like everyone who came, I think there were maybe 200 people. Um, everyone who came had like an amazing time. Um, we had a very popular bar. Um, my whole family on both sides are very big drinkers and so were his and uh, <laughs> so there were um, lots of shenanigans that happened at my wedding. Um, my photographer got so wasted that she lost the camera that took all of my wedding pictures <laughs> and she eventually found it the next day but um, you know she was like just as kind of hung over and, and mortified as the rest of us and um, like there were someone like broke the door leading into the building where we had our reception because they got drunk and had a fight with someone. And it, it like, we ended up having to pay damages. So, so my wedding was one big drunken party fest essentially. And, um, but you know, that's how we lived our life. That was it. So, um, I, after that, uh, this was in 2012 when I got married and, um, Went on my honeymoon, had a great time, drank the entire time on the honeymoon, of course, and uh, came back and then just went back to normal life, you know. Um, I should also mention that my, my first job after graduating from x-ray school was uh, I worked night shift 
um, which was 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And uh, the hospital I worked at was a smaller place. Like I didn't, I didn't work at the same place I went to school. It was a, it was a different location. And um, you were alone for 12 hours at a time, uh, manning the entire radiology department. Like if something went wrong, it was only you there. And so not only was I fresh out of school, um, I was given a crash course in learning how to do CAT scans, which is what I do now full time. Um, it's actually another registry you have to take. Like when you come out of x-ray school, you, you were registered to do just x-rays. Um, CT scan is another registry you have to take because it's another specialty. Um, nowadays, it's the, the, the field has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. It's crazy how fast it's changing. But nowadays, you actually have to go through another school program back when I did it you could train on the job which is what I did um and <laughs> to put it in perspective uh I got about two months of on-the-job training and then they threw me into a 12-hour night shift by myself um the school programs now before you can do CT take about 10 months so I got like this much training and they were like okay go figure it out you know Here and you I did yeah, I did figure it out and it helped me learn very quickly and it helped me be really adaptable. And, um, but it was, it was a lot, you know, to a lot of pressure. And, uh, and again, I was the only one in my group working full time at this point, everyone, we still very much were in the college lifestyle, even after I graduated, because all of our friends were still either in school or just about to finish. And, um, yeah. And even after we were married, that, that still continued. We never really grew up. We never really just wanted to move on and just focus on me and him and our future. Um, which, so was it, was it weekends or war with your drinking? Uh, it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes Sunday, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were pretty much sober days, but Thursday. You, you worked four days a week, right? I worked three days a week. Days I worked week. three twelves. Yeah. So um, basically any time that I wasn't working, I was drinking. Um, and so were my friends. Well, I, I would sometimes be the only one drinking, but this, this is another thing that I, I had to realize in sobriety is like, just cause someone's not drinking doesn't mean they're sober. Like, cause people, people would like smoke weed around me or, um, like I had a couple friends who were just constantly on Molly, like, or like they would do shrooms or a couple of them would do like LSD all the time. So like, well, even though it wasn't alcohol, there was very much an influence around me constantly to be altered in some way, shape or form. Right. Um, so I just got married and was working full time, still partying all that. My graduation party was akin to my wedding. It was a huge drunken shenanigan fest. And um, the thing was, though, like any adults that were around us were like inspired to let loose and bring out their inner child because we were so like embracing the moment and just like fun party, like get drunk here, have a shot. You know, you, you want another one. You know, you want another one. Come on, you know. And right. so they, they would leave thinking like, oh, yeah, that was really fun. So like at this point, I'm probably like 22 23 this time like drinking and fun and are, and a good time are synonymous like i i do not know how to have fun without drinking at this point in my life um so yeah i'm i'm newly married and um 
the the goal for me and my husband at the time was he wanted to he majored in film and his passion was like film editing and directing and um, movie making in general right so he wanted to go to the hub of where all movies are made which is los angeles so um i never wanted to go to la i am not a city person i i very much prefer living in like at least a suburb or something with space around me like being crowded in a city just makes me feel suffocated i don't like it um but we were married and i'm trying to be a drama-free wife so i'm essentially like well I have this job now that's very practical, being an x-ray CT tech, so you just find anywhere with the hospital and I can work there, which is true. Like, that that's the beautiful thing about, like, my career. Like, I can go anywhere in America and do the exact same thing just at a different location, and I, I'm really grateful for that, but instead of really, again, saying my discomfort and instead of kind of saying can we can we not <laughs> you know I, I don't know if this would make me happy I was like all right I'm gonna do what my husband wants I'm gonna be a good wife and we're gonna pull all of our resources into moving to Los Angeles so um, at our wedding we didn't ask for any gifts we asked for cash um, because we were like this is the moving to LA fund like our whole relationship became around him going to LA and doing his dream of movie making and me being the practical day job supporter of said dream. Um, did I like that at the time? No. Did I think I had to do it because I was a wife and this is what you did when you supported your partner? Yes. So um, I didn't really care that it wasn't making me happy. It was just like, I'm doing what's best for my relationship. Like, this is what he wants. I love him. I support him. Um, I'm going to do it anyway. So in addition to saving our money and asking for only money at our wedding, um, we decided to have a roommate uh, in our next place that we were living so we could save more money. Because obviously the more people that live together, the fewer, the less rent you pay. So um, we kind of forego, we decided to forego living as a newly married couple. And we were like, let's just have someone move in so we can save even more money for LA. It was all about LA, all about LA. So the guy we decided to have move in was this friend who had just gotten out of the army. Because um, he he was very stable by this point, had his own job. Like we trusted him as a roommate. So um, yeah, that was that was the uh, the decision that we made. So just before we we had made this decision we were still in our previous apartment um we were all drinking as usual as we do on like a friday or saturday and there were you know six or seven of us over hanging out watching movies and um our apartment at the time before we moved in with this new house um it had like a porch off of the the living room and uh i was out on the porch i don't know why i'd gone out there maybe just to breathe or you know go outside or something but um this friend followed me out onto the porch and shut the door and uh I was like oh, okay yeah hi what's up you know we were just chatting like I was already pretty drunk at this time um when you live in a constant state of drunk you kind of don't know 
how drunk you are, you know? So I, I just know that it was, it was drunk enough to not be completely aware. Like there, there are things that are still fuzzy about this night. So, um, he comes out on the porch with me and like I said, we've been, we've been bonding. We've been getting closer to each other and, you know, he's, I consider him a really good friend at this point. And, um, again, cause we're going to move in together. We have to consider him a good friend. And he starts talking to me and, um, basically out of nowhere, uh, completely just begins to confess that he's in love with me, that um, he thinks I would be better off with him. And he, um, he just, just that he wants me, basically. And mind you, like literally around the corner behind the door is my husband and all of our friends. And he's like saying this to me out of nowhere. And so I... A, being drunk, and B, not knowing, expecting this whatsoever, just kind of go into, like, deer in headlights mode. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so before I can even really say anything back, he starts kissing me. And um, very forcefully, too. Not like like a kiss. It's like, I'm going to kiss you if you like it or not, you know. And so, um, again, more deer in headlights mode. I'm just kind of like, what is going on? And... The kissing turns into him putting his hands under my shirt and then another hand down my pants and um, he has me backed up against the wall and he's just kind of doing whatever he wants with me. Mind you, I'm at this time, I'm maybe 140 pounds, five foot five, and he had just gotten out of the army. He's like 5'11", 250. He is enormous and he is a wall of a human. I cannot do anything against this person. So, um, I, d I don't remember like, like trying to reciprocate at all. I was just kind of like a, like a doll. Like, I think I just kind of stood there like, what the fuck? But, um, he eventually stops because he realizes like, oh shit, we're going to get caught, you know? And, he just, I, he says something to the effect of like, just like, remember what I told you, like, you know, I love you. Right. So, and then he just leaves and goes back inside and I'm just sitting out on the porch. Like, what the hell? Like, like I had to like button up my pants. I had to like fix, like he'd, he'd like tried to take my bra off and, you know, um, I was just like completely flabbergasted. And so I, again, like, like my, my default state of mind when I don't have any higher logical thought is to just maintain the peace just don't rock the boat like just make everything continue on as normal don't be dramatic you know don't be that person just be happy because happiness is the best thing you can be right so instead of saying hi guys i just got forcibly sexual assaulted out on my porch right now i just went back in and got more drunk and tried to forget about it um, so what happened after that is he took that to mean, because I didn't, you know, I didn't say no, I didn't like try and fight him. It was over in like 10 to 15 seconds. Right. And I guess he kind of was like, oh, well, you want me now. Like this is, this is happening. Like clearly you let me kiss you. You let me put my hand in your pants you know you let me feel you up so uh you're mine now and I was like no no and I didn't I didn't have the skills or the wherewithal 
to understand like what exactly had happened. Like I, I was, because again, I'd been taught by my, my husband at the time, like men just need sex and I'm supposed to give it to them, you know? So what I was missing was the concept of consent. Like I didn't consent to any of that at all. And I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it, but he used that as a form of blackmail for months. Um, he's like, I'm going to tell your husband what we did. You know, um, I need you to like, do all of this stuff. I need you to come over. I want you more. Um, you know, I, you're mine now because we did this, um, you know? And so I didn't know it at the time, but he was essentially like, you know, entrapping me into this, this false reality. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that my relationship with my husband was perfect. You know, obviously, like I said, there was a lot of stuff that we sucked at communicating about, but, um, I honestly just realized probably like two or three months ago that the first, that this, what, what had happened to me on that porch was actually sexual assault. Like I had, I had not yet given it that name before because I didn't realize until I'd started getting sober and I had uncovered it. I'm like, Oh, um, I in no way, shape or form asked him to put his hand down my pants. <laughs> um, I didn't invite him to try and take my bra off. Like I didn't, I didn't do any of that. So, um, that night kind of started to make me disassociate from myself. Um, cause I was, I was essentially living a double life. Like I started to question, like, do, do I want this person? Like, he's over here telling me like, you know, all this kindness I've given him, you know, cause I mean, this is a common thing. And I remember Rag saying this in, in her podcast too, that, you know, kindness and trying to be a good friend to someone can be seen as leading them on. And that's, that's what he accused me of. He's like, you've been leading me on all this time. Like, like clearly. And I'm like, I'm just trying to be your friend. You know, like I didn't, I just got married. You were one of the best men at my wedding, like the Grimsman. I'm like, what, <laughs> you know, but people who are like this, they, they don't care. Like they just, they, they take what they want and that's all that matters to them. And so, so I was so disassociated from myself at this point that, um, I let him move in with me and my husband as our roommate after all this had happened. And my focus was still on be the drama free girlfriend, be, be the good wife, you know, help, help your man get to LA to achieve his dream, you know? So I was like, well, I can still do all of that. Like I can still work. I can still be, you know, I can still support him. Like none of this is going away. He doesn't have to know about this. And, but really what was, what happened once he moved in with me and my husband was pretty much constant blackmail and coercion into me, like servicing him constantly. Um, I, I was so focused on just trying to maintain the peace and not let my husband know <laughs> that this was going on. Um, because at this point I had also had a lot of guilt. I'm like, well, I did, I did that, you know, like he's going to So you're drinking even more than now. Oh, oh yeah. Like it, it's, it's now on step four, like step one was fun. Step two was escape. Step three was suppressing. And step four is like, 
just numbing because I cannot handle like what is going on all around me because my husband is wanting one thing for me. And then seriously, like as soon as my husband would leave the house, this friend would be like, all right, it's good time. Like, and come up to me and be like, you're mine now. Like he's gone, you know? And I, I didn't have the wherewithal or the tools or anything to just say no. And I was just scared. Cause like I said, this guy's enormous. Um, he's, literally a trained killer (laughs) from the army so like I the last thing I wanted to do was make him mad and uh and over time I eventually was legitimately convinced because he was so persistent he wrote me love letters and like he had like the nicest fanciest like Shakespearean handwriting you know and he would leave me love notes a lot and he he would take my husband's lack of attention and use that as fuel to like get at me he'd be like look at how he's not paying attention to you here like this is what I'm doing and this whole time like I'm I'm trying to like still maintain the peace and focus on just like getting out of here moving to LA I'm like when when we're out in LA like I won't have to deal with this he'll be gone you know so it was this went on for over a year and a half uh before everything finally came out and I'm internalizing all this guilt because I'm not even joking drifter. Like sometimes I would come from one room where like he had essentially like raped me because I didn't want any of this. Like I never once wanted any of this contact with him and I was doing it simply to maintain this peace. And I didn't want like my husband to have all of his dreams dashed you know and then I would come out and I'd have to put on this game face and just like be this happy person for my husband and you know it was it was such a parallel to what I was going through in school you know and what I was going through at my job like just suppressing your emotions watching one guy die to coming into a room where Mm -hmm. somebody's yelling at you two faces yeah yeah and so I over over this time period I completely lost who I was. And I was spending most of my time either drunk or hungover because I just, I didn't, I mean, how can you handle that? I don't think there's any good way. Well, I knew how I could have, I could have just stood up at the beginning and said, no, what you did was wrong. (laughs) And I didn't want that, but I didn't, I didn't have the capability at that time. I didn't have the wherewithal. Um, so eventually all of this, um, I don't even remember how exactly it happened. I think maybe, I left my Facebook logged in on my husband's computer or something, but he, he eventually found out what had been going on with me and his friend. And it was like a huge, ugly, you know, how could you do this to me? You know, and I was asking myself that same question. I'm like, I don't know how I could, like, I don't know how, (laughs) I don't know how it got to this point. Um, In retrospect, I know exactly how it's because I was legitimately traumatized. I, you know, I'd been, forced into sex so many times with this person and um and I was you know I wasn't acknowledging any of it I was just like maintain the peace maintain the peace cover it up drink (laughs) drink to just um make it all go away essentially and um but I still was trying to hold on to this notion of that this this guy the friend was who I was truly supposed to be with he, cause he, he was telling me that he's like, no one understands me like you do. Like, um, we really get each other. You're my soulmate, you know? And 
somewhere beneath all of this was me, uh, very, very lost in like a very dark corner. I really like Polly's um, visual metaphor of like the girl in the well, you know, like looking yeah. up and trying to see like that was, <laughs> that was very much me. And um, so once, once all this came to light, um, me and my husband got divorced and it was really honestly like the easiest divorce ever because we hadn't even really started our lives yet. Like we, we didn't have any property together. We didn't have kids. And like, it was just like, I'm going to sign a paper. You're going to sign a paper. And then you're, you know, we're done. Um, I lost pretty much all of my friends because all of them were like, how can you do this to your husband? Like you were such a, like you're a cheating, lying bitch, essentially, you know? And I don't fault them for that at all. Like to the outside. And I thought that about myself too, like to the outside world, that's exactly what it looked like. Like I cheated on my husband with his best friend, <laughs> you know, but um, the reality was that there were a lot of like layers under that, like of fear and trauma and coercion and pressure. Manipu and manipulation for sure. Manipulate, Yeah. And blackmail and all and of this stuff. Yeah. And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't as easy. And I didn't even know that it was all of that at the time. Like I was just living in it and trying to survive basically. Um, so lost all my friends. Um, they all turned on me. They're like, how can you do all of this? And I, like I said, I don't fault them for that whatsoever. Um, so we decided to me, <laughs> I went straight from divorced to in a relationship with this this friend this abuser um because like I said he had me convinced that he was everything to me that um we were meant to be together and I held on to this hope that there was going to be like a light at the end of the tunnel like we were gonna we were gonna move and start over and everything would be fine so <laughs> this is the story of how I got to Florida which is where I am still at today so in 2013 um he decided to, he, he wanted to, we, we decided we were going to stay together. We were going to move. We didn't know where, but um, he wanted to go to school um, to learn. He was already like an aspiring auto mechanic. Like he was, he'd been to school for that in the army and stuff, but in Daytona beach, Florida, there's a school um, that teaches motorcycle maintenance. And um, because he was in the army, he was able to get paid to go to school on the GI bill. So he's like, I already have a guaranteed income. I just, I got into this program. Let's go to Florida. And I'm like, okay. Again, like my, my, myself is nowhere in the picture at this point. Like I'm just floating along, trying to maintain the peace and keep everyone happy. So, uh, so we did, um, we hired a moving truck, uh, put as much shit as we could into the truck. And I left everything I've ever known in Missouri to move across the country where I knew no one. I knew no one in Florida. And uh, what I also realize now is that this is a technique that abusers do to isolate you. Um, they very much want you all to themselves. <laughs> and if that wasn't obvious already by his behavior, um, you know, that there, there's no way to better isolate someone than to literally move them to a state where they know no one else except for you. Sure. So, um, so yeah, we moved in September of 2013. Um, we rented a house uh, and, you know, just tried to start our lives over. And again, like I said about my job, um, 
the beautiful thing is I can just find a hospital and work anywhere. And that's exactly what I did. I found a really good job about 20 minutes from where we ended up staying. And um, pretty, it took me maybe a month to find a job when I got here. I had a decent chunk of savings. Um, one thing my parents were always very good at was teaching me good, good finances and how to be financially independent. And um, even through all my relationships, I was one of those people that would never let anyone touch any of my money. <laughs> I was very like, this is yours and this is mine and you do not get access to my money. And I'm very, very glad that that, that was something that was instilled in me from a young age. So I had, I had some money I spent. I actually opened two credit cards to finance the move down here because he didn't have anything. Um, so I financed all, all the moving expenses on my own on credit cards that I opened. And um, they were the kind that gives you like a year interest-free, you know, when you open them. So I was like, we can pay this off in a year, no problem. But um, what that meant essentially was that he was going to have to like pay me back for all of this stuff. And he hated every fucking second of that. Like he hated that he didn't have control over the money that I was asking for money from him. Um, it was a nightmare every time the bills came due at the beginning of the month, because I had to like tread on eggshells, egg like trying to get him to pay me the money or, and the tiniest little thing would set him off. And, um, you know, he, uh, he's still feeding me occasionally this, this diatribe of like, you're my soulmate. We're in Florida now. Everything's going to be fine. Like all those people, all those haters back in Missouri, they don't get us. Like we're special. We're going to, you know, we're going to smash this life and start an amazing life down here. And I was like, I really wanted that, you know? Um, but that's not how you do it. <laughs> that's not, um, the way that it started. It, it was doomed to fail, but I'm, I, one of my bosses told me once at work, uh, it was one of the best compliments I've ever received. He's like, no matter where you go, you're going to succeed because that's just who you are. You, you take the circumstances that are given to you and you make the best out of them. And that in and of itself is, is a really good thing. That's a really good quality to have. But, um, when you're doing that with a person like, like this guy who I moved to Florida with, it's, it's like being around a black hole. You, you give and you give and you give and you try and, you know, find happiness and, and make things okay. And there's always something, always something wrong. Um, I, I started to get, you know, a friend group through my work, my, my first job here. And he didn't like that. He, um, he started to pick apart every single one of my friends and tell me why they were losers. And um, and you guys are still drinking at this time too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we basically continued our, our, you know, pre Florida drinking into, into Florida. And, uh, you know, I will admit that like, obviously it, when you get drunk, you're, you're not the most rational, logical, easiest person to talk to. And I'm not going to pretend that like, this is entirely his fault and I'm 100% the victim. Like there, there were things that in this circumstance I could have done better, but, um, given, given that it started with, you know, this, the situation that it did, I, I don't, I never had a fighting chance. Like, I mean, I tried, <laughs> but really it was, everything was destined to fail. So, um, 
you know, we, I started to get a friend group and, uh, he, he tried to isolate me from my friends. My friends like down here, like to drink too, but they weren't nearly as, as, you know, intense as my friends from Missouri. Um, so that started to make me see like, oh, maybe I am a little excessive. Maybe I am a little using this unhealthily, but, but all that did was make me transition to more of a home drinker. I, I went out, I went from a social drinker, like at parties and with people over to just drinking at home alone. And I think when you reach that stage, that would be like stage five and all the stages I've said, like, that's when you know, like, this is really ugly, you know, like, cause you're not, there's no purpose behind it other than to not feel like that's, that's the only reason you want to do it. So, um, so in 2013, we moved here and that I continued this relationship with him for four years until um, the end of 2017. And in those four years, um, I, outside of him, I made a great life for myself. Uh, I found some really amazing new friends. Um, I continued working in my career. I advanced. I eventually became um, a manager at one of my jobs. I was a coordinator, so I was I was climbing the ladder, <laughs> you know, as they say. Um, and I was I was succeeding on paper in every way, shape, and form. Like if you looked at my life, it was it was going up like this. But um, at home, I was so like just constantly afraid of of my boyfriend of, of what he would do of, uh, you know, just, just anything going wrong because it was, it was the same thing. Like as soon as I had any other emotion besides happiness, he'd be like, Oh, just get over it. You know? And I would try and I would try and talk to him, um, about, uh, you know, stuff that I would see at work, but because he was coming from an environment of being in the army, it was always a competition. He'd be like, that's not that bad. You know, I've seen worse. And I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to make it a competition. I just wanted to confide in my partner. Like I had a hard day. This is what I saw. But he'd be like, fuck you, get over it. You know, like, so it was, it was a relationship, but really it was just like, here's this guy in the beginning though, that you can talk to. Yep. And you thought you could confide in and he listened to you mm-hmm. and now, now here it is. Just get over it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so he, he lured you in. Correct. Back correct. then. Right. It, yeah. It was, it was complete and it was pre-planned manipulation. Like he, he planned ways to get me away from my husband and to make me hits. Like there's no other way. It was, uh, I don't remember the term preconceived notions and stuff like that. Um, and um, premeditated premeditated there you go and it was pre something thank you um but this this just kind of goes to show how how like how dark of a person this guy is um there are some abusers that are you know very vocal about it they're just like assholes to everyone you know they're they're just like angry people um so you, you see someone who's like blowing up in rage at, at like a stranger or, you know, it's like, or, or they're, they're presenting like that side of themselves to the general public. And you're like, oh, well, they're, they must be a shitty partner. But this guy was the most insidious, manipulative, like 
just sneaky abuser that you can possibly think of. Like he would put on so many faces to make me look what, what really he wanted to do was invalidate any claims that I might have against him. He'd be like, well, all these other people think I'm amazing. Like, you know, what you're saying that you're scared of me, you're crazy, you know, like, and he would, he would sow seeds of like distrust here and there. And just, I, I fell down this really, really deep, dark pit of not even trusting my own emotions because I, I, I mean, I, things would happen and I would say, I don't like that. And he'd be like, that didn't happen. And I'm like, but you just, you just said this to me. You just did this thing. Like, can you please not do that again? He's like, I didn't do that. That didn't happen. And I'm like, I just saw it, but it's, it's like that kind of stuff where you, you begin to doubt your very sanity. It's right. It's like, it's like crazy. And, and again, like this whole time, um, with like the pressure to like have sex and stuff all the time, like he, he liked certain like things rough, not to get to, um, you know, in or detailed or intimate or anything, but, um, like I didn't, I didn't get a choice in that either. Um, like there were times when he like would like choke me and I would genuinely be afraid that he was going to kill me, but I just, was like, this is what he wants. I have to give it to him, you know? And, um, there were times when I would be asleep, like dead asleep. And I would wake up with him like doing stuff to me, like zero consent, like whatsoever. And I just figured like, oh, this is how all couples are, <laughs> you know? Um, I didn't, I didn't have any idea that none of that was okay. Um, and I didn't have any idea why it was messing me up like it was. Cause I'm like, this is how it should be, you know? So, so you're leaving, leading two, two lives. I mean, you're oh, professional yeah. uh, with your friends and then with what hit him at home mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. probably pounding the alcohol. Yeah. Cause the only way to reconcile all of this was to just not feel, you know, um, once I started to quit drinking, I realized that probably like 90 to 95% of the sex I've had in my life has been me drunk. Um, either willingly or unwillingly. Like I don't, I'm having to relearn <laughs> like, like intimacy, like all over again, because so much of what I thought was okay before was really not okay. Like, really, really not okay. And, um, and, and, you know, alcohol just masked it for a very long time. And so over, over the time that I was living down here with him, um, I was, it started off as like a bottle or bottle and a half of wine every night. Um, wine was my, my go-to, but I would drink anything. Like if it had alcohol on it, I would drink it like begrudgingly sometimes, but as long as it got me drunk, I didn't care. You know, I just wanted something, anything. And, um, the wine, the bottle in half, like turned into two. And then like right before I started to, to get sober, it was at two and a half to three bottles every night. And, um, and uh, th this is after, cause I, I left him. Well, he so left, you left him in, in 2017, 2017. Right? Yeah. The end of 2017. And um, also before he like the last six months leading up to us separating um he got violent with me finally 
um, I got so tired of him just stomping all over me. I, I, I started to get a backbone. I started to talk back to him and say no. And he hated it. He hated it. And um, one time he, uh, I was standing in like in front of the bathroom. I don't even know what we were talking about. We got in fights over every damn thing, but um, he wanted to like get past me. And so he just like shoved me full force into this closet and it broke the door and I had a bruise on my hip like this big and I couldn't walk right for like two or three days. Um, so everyone at work was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, I, you know, I can't say that. So I had to just make up a, a reason. And I remember like a few days after that, he was, he was like staring. I was wearing shorts and he could see the bruise on my hip and he was like staring at it. Like as we were sitting on the couch, I'm like, what's wrong? He's like you know, I'm really sorry I did that to you, but you really shouldn't make me that mad again. You know, like essentially it's your fault. <laughs> and uh, that's trademark, trademark every abuser, every single one does that. And um, I've, I've learned so much since I've gotten out of this about what are abusive behaviors, about what to look for in a person. Um, because I, I, I spent about a year and a half being single after he left. Um, it sucked too, because I, we went from a two-income household to just me. And so I was regularly going into debt at the end of every month because I like couldn't, I couldn't keep up. And um, I finally broke down like two or three months after and like called my parents and told them what was happening. And they were just like, because they were back home in Missouri. They had no idea that it had gotten this bad. They knew nothing. Because again, I'm trying to maintain the peace. I want to be happy. I want to be drama free, you know? So um, yeah, they, they eventually stepped in and started helping me, but only after they realized like what exactly was going on. And um, I, yeah, so I spent a year and a half just kind of being single. And that, that year and a half was I don't remember most of it. I'm not even joking when I tell you that I was either drunk or hungover. Like that was how I existed. I, not only was I alone, but I was left with all of this irreconcilable, like years and years of manipulation and gaslighting and trauma. And I didn't know how to, <laughs> how to get over it. So I just, I worked. Well, you're doing two and three bottles of wine a day on yeah. top of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Which obviously was just delaying the, the process, you know, but that was my only coping skill I had at the time was just drinking. Right. So I would, I would wake up, go to work, come home, drink, sleep, wake up. Like that was my life basically. Um, which doesn't was, help the finances on top of that. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I don't even know how much money I was spending on, on wine. It was quite a bit, but um but, you know, you, you make all these rationales for yourself about sure. why it's okay. And, and in my head, I was like, I'm still having a job. I'm still supporting myself. I'm going into debt. Sure. But, you know, a lot of people are in debt. Why not? You know, just, I just need a drink. And, um, I started finally, uh, started dating again, like almost two years after, after he left. And, uh, that was what really slowly started to open my eyes to how bad my drinking had gotten. Um, cause it's easy to stay in your little hole and accept your drinking when, you know, there's no one to compare it to and no one to check you and no one to talk to you about it. And, um, 
I, uh, I, I, I actually had a guy move in with me once, um, for a very, very brief period. Like we were dating for about six months. It was going pretty well, but, um, he'd be like constantly just like, you drank all that? Like what? You know? And he, he was just very open about pointing out how much he, he did it like, like caringly, like lovingly. Um, but that was the first time someone had actually told me in my entire life, like that's excessive. Like no one else had ever told me that. And I was like 28 at this time. I was just figuring that out. I was just figuring yeah. it out. Yeah. 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 So like no one had ever like even insinuated that I was doing anything wrong with my drinking until, until this person. And um, actually we're not, we're not together anymore. Um, he's since moved on, he's engaged, but uh once I hit my hundred days of sobriety, I actually found him on Facebook and I sent him a message. I was like, thank you for saying this to me. Um, I know I was probably really a pain in the ass to deal with when I was with you, but um, I needed that wake up call. And like, I'm, I have a hundred days sober now. And he was really, really proud of me. He's like, I'm so glad. Cause he's like, you're a really good person. I just knew that you were, <laughs> you were really messed up, you know? And I was, and I hadn't, I still hadn't dealt with, and I'm still currently dealing with, um, the fallout from like my abuser and stuff like that. But, uh, it was, it was not something I was handling very well when I was with him, but, um, but yeah, so that, um, that happened. And, um, one thing that, uh, my ex abuser would always tell me was that, well, other than not being good enough in general, but he, um, he, he was like, I'll never marry you because you're too sloppy or you're too this or you're too, you can't maintain a home. You wouldn't be a good mom. You know, you wouldn't be a good homemaker and stuff like that. And so, um, in December of 2017, so not even a year after we had parted, I bought my own house because fuck him. <laughs> and, uh, I, I got a realtor and, um, I was tired of renting. Renting around in my area is like crazy expensive compared to like having a mortgage. So I saved up. I, I used like pretty much all the savings I had. And um, I got some really wonderful gifts from one of my aunts who I, I didn't ask for it at all. She just, she's, she's always been really there for me. And she's, she helped me with the down payment on my house. And um and that's where I'm at right now. That's in my house. And I've been here for three and a half years now. And I actually just refinanced my house and I got like a super awesome interest rate. So, um, I, I made it a point to do all the things that he said I would be terrible at because I needed to prove to myself that he was wrong <laughs> and I was a good person and, um, you know, I, I am successful and I do matter and I do love myself and, um, the house was a big one. I was like, really, I was still really in active addiction while I bought this house though, because, um, the first thing I did, it was like eight in the morning when I went and signed all my title papers. I came home, I had a bottle of wine left over from like the night before. And at like 9am when I got home, I cracked open the bottle and I drank the whole thing in celebration. <laughs> but, uh, to me, I was like, Hey, look, I'm, I'm still succeeding in life, you know? Um, so it's, it's whatever like my, my success was still going up so I can drink. And, um, it, it really finally started to occur to me in, you know, since I joined the IAS community June 1st of 2020. And within the year before that was when I really finally started to realize I'd been away from abuser long enough 
I'd been on my own long enough. I'd been healing long enough to realize that I alcohol was actually harming me. It wasn't something that was helping. Um, so that was in 2019 when you realized. I was starting to like, I, I was beginning to question um, my relationship with it because up until like up until 2019 or so I'd been using alcohol to kind of medicate my anxiety, which is, I think is very common. A lot of people do that if they have underlying anxiety or depression, like they use alcohol to self-medicate. And, uh, I remember very distinctly, it was crazy. I, I was like at least a bottle of wine down and I was still anxious. I was like, Oh my God, like alcohol isn't fixing this. Like, what am I going to do? You know, like I just, I had this moment in my head where I'm like, shit, well, either my tolerance is like going crazy and I need to drink more or maybe like alcohol is not solving this for me anymore, you know? And, um, and then there, there were other times where I became like, I used to be a very like happy fun drunk, um, but there was, I think, um, Elaine East guy mentioned this in her podcast too, that there was, there was a, a couple months where it just turned very dark when she got drunk. Um, and I resonate a lot with that because it, it became something that I enjoyed to something that would turn me into a very like hateful, bitter person. And that was not me at all. Like I've never been an angry drunk in my entire life until, until this moment happened. And, um, it, it started off with me being angry at my parents. First of all, um, they eventually moved down here. They're retired now. Um, but they, they had like a liquor cabinet in their house. And whenever I would go visit them and I would stay the night, um, they eventually had to start hiding all of their liquor because after they went to bed, I would just have a free for all and I would go crazy and just, you know, take shots. And I would, I, I remember, um, T and T's podcast, she would mention how she was filling stuff up with water, you know, and then like just hoping that no one noticed. Like that's what I did. I would I would have their vodka. I would take like four or five shots just to get really really drunk really quickly, and then I just put you know put the water back in it, and um, and I started to get like I would say stuff to them that I didn't I didn't remember saying, but in the, the next day like they would be like devastated. Like I would turn into this incredibly hateful, scary person that I didn't recognize. And, um, and I think now I realized that that happened because I was really, really bitter at all the injustice that was done to me, like by, you know, by abuser and stuff like that. And I just, I didn't have any other way sober to really express that or feel that I should have gone to therapy <laughs> one thing and, I really, and it came out in your blackouts it did yeah like when all of my filters were gone I just I turned all the hatred around that I had for him and I just like like vomited it on everyone else in my life and um so you were definitely scary. waking up very much. shame guilt oh. I don't know yeah. about me I was suicidal I don't know if you went there did you I I did um I never made like a plan to kill myself but um but you thought about it yeah for sure I me too. Uh, I never really made a plan mm -hmm. but I woke up with it every day 
Yeah. And it, it was more of just, I can't remember. I think it was Polly that said this, that she, she's like, if this is how my life is, I don't want it anymore. And that that's, yes. I just wanted to stop existing. You know, I didn't want to kill myself, but I didn't want to exist anymore either. You know? Um, so I eventually started to realize that it wasn't serving me. And I also realized I had a massive problem with how I related to men for partners, because if I allowed all of this to happen to me, like there's something very wrong with what I think is okay and what I allow in my life. And I had to, I went on like a crusade almost to like figure out why in the hell I had these views and why I thought like, you know, why I allowed this, this guilt to happen, why I allowed like all of this, you know, pretty much consistent rape to happen to me constantly in this and why I allowed this guy to move in with like me and my husband. Like, you know, there's so much stuff that like, I had such a higher priority at the time of, of maintaining the peace and being the drama free woman rather than standing up for what I actually thought. And I was like, there's gotta be a way to change all of this. So I, I eventually found a lot of um, various groups, mostly through Facebook actually, um, about women who had been through um, varying forms of like toxic and hurtful relationships and stuff like that. And it just blew me away how absolutely common it was for um, for this this kind of thinking to occur in in relationships and for women to be manipulated and like gaslit and you know. And even just listening to the podcast that you've done, Drifter, like, I feel like every woman you've had on has had a moment where, like, they've, they've had, like, a toxic man in their lives, and they've used drinking to kind of cover it up and, you know, move on from it. And um, I, I bought a couple books. Uh, there's one called Why Does He Do That? Um, it's uh, by a man who is, he's uh, a licensed professional. He's like a mental health counselor and he has been for 30 years and he works with um, people who are court ordered to go to therapy for domestic violence situations. And uh, he like laid out all the patterns that like abusive men have. And like, I read it and I was just like, oh my God, you're describing my ex. Like, oh my God, this is every single one of these. He's like, tick, tick, like, tick, 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 tick. And so like I majored in science, right? Like I, I, I have a science education. And so I got super analytical about it. I was like, I need to find out what characteristics these people have and like how to avoid them. Hey, are you still drinking when you're like exploring this? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had not because the, the very last piece of my puzzle so far was finding out that alcohol wasn't serving me. So we're like down here still, like I'm trying to figure out all these other things, but I hadn't yet admitted that drinking was still a problem. I'm like, if I can just figure out all of this stuff about other people and how I relate to them, then my problems will be solved. And, you know, so, right. um, yeah. Uh, but I eventually did figure that out. And um, I, I learned a lot. And one of my, one of my favorite phrases that I learned, um, it was actually from, um, a group that's, uh, for cheating support. I, I actually had an, another guy I dated who cheated on me. That's out beside the point. He doesn't deserve any more of my time, but anyway, um, 
I was in a group on Facebook for like infidelity and cheating support too. And the, the phrase that was going around was trust that they suck because as women, I believe we want to keep seeing the best in people. We want to be like, oh, they did this, but here's all these other reasons why they're actually a good person, why I should love them, but this, but that. It's like, no, if they do a behavior that bothers you and they keep doing it, even if you ask them not to, they suck. Trust that they suck. Like, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You get to say no. You get to say that you're disrespecting me when I... and. You know, and I was like, that's magical. Like, I never thought about it that way. I always tried to make excuses for people and be like, oh, yeah, he's actually really great. Or blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you did this thing and I'm not letting this thing go. Like, this thing deserves to be taken seriously because it matters to me. And you don't just get to shove it aside and say, like, you know, you're being dramatic or you're this. It's like, no, this matters and you're going to talk about it. <laughs> and so, um, that that really kind of transformed me um, when I when I realized that. Um, and that's how you are now, then, right? Yes, that was that was very much the key. And I finally did find a healthy relationship in my fiance. Now, um, it's very unconventional because he's he lives in Australia, <laughs> so I, I've only actually been around him for a brief two week period when he came to visit right before COVID. Um, but I, I tested everything on him. I was like, I, I made a huge deal out of the stuff that I never would have mentioned to anyone else. I'm like, hey, that thing you said, um, I don't really like that. Can, can we talk about that? You know, like, and, and rather than just thinking, oh, I'm just making something out of nothing, making a mountain out of a molehill. I should just learn to let things go more. I'm like, no, we're going to talk about this, you know? And slowly it was terrifying it was terrifying to do that at first but slowly over over time um he was like very um very receptive and very like okay uh your feelings matter and i'm going to honor them and i'm going to you know consider your comfort always and so when when he when we we were talking for about four or five months online before he decided to come here and visit me and it was a really awesome four or five months he was it was a very supportive fun friendly and you're still drinking during this time yes still drinking and he has a lot to do with why i quit drinking too because the two and three bottles a day is still drinking right correct correct very much so um we're talking about my fiance now we actually met online in a Facebook group. Um, I don't remember how exactly I stumbled across this Facebook group, but um, the group is literally entitled, Men Are So Confused About Their Current Market Value. That's the name of the group. <laughs> and, essentially, and, he, and he was in here? He was in that group. And I'm like, first of all, why is a guy in this group? That's really strange. But the whole tone of the group was, it was like a support group for women who had been through like really hurtful, toxic relationships and, you know, people, women could just come on and and vent about like their bad experiences with men. Exactly. So, so I commented on someone's post and he, he responded and um, I was first like, why are you, why are you here? You're a guy. (laughs) And second of all, I was just like really kind of blown away with how 
like well-worded and eloquent he was and like how compassionate he was. And so we commented back and forth for like a few days. And then I, I sent him a message and um, this is the only time I will give a slight bit of credit to alcohol in my story because I was still so deathly afraid of men when I was sober that I never would have reached out and messaged him if I hadn't been drunk. <laughs> so I was in my second bottle of wine that night, you know, chatting with him on Facebook and I'm like, let's be friends. I want to talk to you like, you know, happy drunk. Right. Um, so slowly over time, um, I realized that he, you know, he wasn't the kind of person that I had to worry about. And first of all, he's in Australia, so I can just literally go block and like, like never talk to him again. Like there is no threat whatsoever. And I had complete control over the situation. And um, so once, once we, we kind of got closer and started talking on the phone, um, I would have conversations with him that I wouldn't remember the next day. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was obvious to him that I was drunk, but you know, he, he was still getting to know me. He didn't want to like bring anything up, but I just felt terrible because he'd go on about a subject that we had talked about the day before. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what are we talking about? I don't remember any of this, you know? And so I would just kind of nod along like, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I realized I was like, okay, well that sucks because I, I don't want to have to keep asking him, you know, what, what we're talking about. And, um, it, then those those turned into video calls and uh the same thing happened and i would i would just go off on tangents and you know how you get when you're drunk you're just like you know you repeat yourself you don't make any sense and you know and the next morning i would wake up and i'd be like oh my god what did i say like oh it was just like the worst feeling like you you're just dreading looking at your phone and ugh. so um I, I just, that was like a lot of cognitive dissonance because for once in my life, for once, I had a guy who really honestly, truly respected me and was healthy for me. Like I knew that I had eliminated all possibility that he was a shitty person like so far, but I was still drinking and I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't add up now. Like I, this is already gone. And so I don't need to worry about this anymore, but why am I, why am I still drinking? So I kept drinking for many more months after this, but I, I remember having that realization, like, is this serving me right now? You know? Um, and uh, eventually he decided that he wanted to come here and visit me. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Like he's never been to the U S before. Um, he had some free time. He's pretty good with money. So he, he's like, what times are good for you? So we booked, it was by some miracle that it was right before COVID. It was literally like a week before COVID start in February, 2020. And um, he came here for two weeks. And uh, I remember I was so nervous about meeting him for the first time that uh, I took like two shots of whiskey, like to take the edge off, you know? And so pretty much the whole time he was here, I had a great time. We had, we did a lot of really good stuff, but it was very foggy for me because I spent, again, most of my interactions with pleasing men and being a good woman around a man were when I was drunk, just so I could constantly be happy all the time, you know? So, but then it just, it didn't make any sense anymore because like this person was actually caring for me and actually like 
being healthy for me in ways that I'd never gotten. And so I'm like, alcohol is not fitting into this picture. Like this doesn't, this doesn't work. So, um, still that didn't, that didn't matter. February, 2020, um, went, came and went. And, um, for a couple more months, I continued drinking and it got to the point on, on my birthday last year, uh, where I, to celebrate, I had the day off to celebrate. I, um, woke up in the morning. I'd bought a bottle of Jameson the night before. And uh, Jameson was the whiskey that I liked to drink, but, um, I would really drink anything. And I started taking shots about 9am, um, birthday shots. You know, I would, this was like my last clinging to like that college party lifestyle. Like the last, the last little bit, like, it was just like, uh, like just trying, <laughs> trying to hold on to it. And, uh, but I was just standing alone in my kitchen at like 9.30am, like, looking down at this shot glass. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, what is this fun? I mean, I did it anyway. I did it anyway. And the worst part is I was pretty drunk by like 11 or 1130. And I drove to lunch with my parents and I didn't this get This is like your 32nd birthday. My 32nd birthday. Yes. And, uh, I drove to lunch with them and they could tell that I was wasted already. And it was supposed to be a fun birthday lunch. And Apparently I was, I mean, I remember it. I didn't think I was that loud at the time, but I, I guess I was just acting like an idiot, you know? And, um, they were not happy that I was driving drunk and, um, I, but, but I'd made a, a habit out of driving drunk for years. Like it, it was, it was just no question to me. I drove drunk all the time when I was drinking. It is an absolute miracle that I never killed myself or anyone else. Um, but yeah, after that, um, I was so hungover the next day that I thought I was going to die. I just, I, I couldn't function. My head, my, my heart was palpating out my chest. And um, I just knew, I don't know what I needed to do, but I knew I needed to do something. Um, so at the time, I was obsessively watching this animated show called BoJack Horseman. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but... Um, it's it's an adult animated show and it's it has a very realistic depiction of alcoholism and addiction and um i loved watching it because it made me feel not alone i was like okay whoever made this really understands how shitty it feels to be this deep into alcohol and there was a facebook group about that show that I had joined and someone had posted a screen cap of their, their counter on I am sober, like the day's counter. And they were like celebrating like a milestone to the group. And I was like, Oh, there are apps for this shit. Like what? <laughs> so I just Googled. So, or not Google that uh, in the app store, I looked up sober apps and um, I am sober was the first one. And I signed up that day and I had no idea what it was like at first. Um, I just, I kind of planned on using it for just a counter for accountability, like a lot of people. But uh, within a few days, I found the community tab and um, I kind of just poured out this like vomit, word vomit piece about how, sh how ashamed I felt, all the crappy stuff I'd done when I was drunk and, you know, how terrible I felt and all this stuff. And, uh, I think I remember when you came in because you were always so really elegant with your writings. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you really spelled stuff out really clear. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, people had appreciated that with my posts. They're like, oh, I can relate so much. And, you know, and that blew my mind. Like I was so trapped in this isolation bubble, partially because of what my abuser had done to me, but also just because of the nature of alcohol, like it, it takes you away from everything good in life, basically. And, um, I just, I didn't know that other people were going through the same thing and finding that out was a game changer that I wasn't alone. Um, I thought I was the worst. I think we all think that we're the worst drunk at first. It's like no one, oh, you don't know my stories. You don't know this, you know, and you, you kind of have this almost sense of ego about how bad you are at first. And, um, but really in reading and just slowly learning people's stories over the time, I'm like, there is so much fighting going on all the time it destroys every one of us yeah yeah and like like you call it like the arena you know like we're all everyone every single one of us is in there and it's all for one common purpose and it's all um you know to well, get the out arena we all have an arena and mm -hmm. the arena is our is our own minds yeah and um and that's why i have the man the man in the arena which i got from Brene brown once i read the man in the arena I knew that fit with sobriety because we're all in the arena getting our asses kicked. This, yeah. <clears throat> um, it's destructive and it's destroying all of us. Even though we get, we're getting sober, we're just finding like you, wow, I got all this other shit that I got to deal with. Yeah. So anyway, you, you found I am sober mm -hmm. and you're, so you're getting into your, you're getting, you're getting into the arena. Mm-hmm. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think anyone who drinks to excess has moments where they're like, oh, I'm never going to do this again. I have to stop. But like, that's a good thought, but it really doesn't matter unless you put time and energy and work behind it and you make, you make changes to make that happen. And, um, for the first, I think my first streak was eight days. And then I gave into that voice. That's like, I'm fine now. I can do this, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Totally complete bullshit. <laughs> but, um, I, I, I don't know it, for the next like two or three months, it was really consistent resets. Like I deleted the app twice. Uh, I was convinced that it was, um, too much pressure that I was, I was unable to stop comparing myself to people who were succeeding. It made me feel like shit because I'm like, well, I'm not like them, you know? I'm clearly failing. So I should just not even try the, like T calls it the fuck it button. Like I right. just, that was my best friend for those like first, like three or four months. So we started like, out the same day, T and I. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so cool. And I can't remember who else started in, in June, it was June of last year also right around Holly. the same time I did. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I, I eventually, I remember making this post one time after a reset and, um, Kali D was one of the first people, I don't know if you know her, Yes, I do. But, um, she, she was one of the first people to reach out to me on there. And, um, I, I had just reset and I posted like this, this thing about how, whenever I drank now, I, I called it like a squirmy, uneasy feeling. I'm like, I feel squirmy and I feel uneasy when I drink. It's not something I enjoy anymore I look forward to and she's like that's because you you know like you you've uncovered it you know that it's not serving you anymore but you're doing it anyway she's like that squirminess that uneasiness is supposed to be there 
that means it's working. <laughs> and um, I, I had a moment shortly after that where I was really, really having a bad day. And like, I was, I was at like that metaphorical crossroads, you know, in, in the, in the road. And I had driven myself to um, a parking lot of a gas station where I usually got either wine or beer. And I was about to go inside. Like I was literally parked in the gas station. I just, I like took every single fucking ounce of my energy. And I just, I got on my phone and I just messaged her on Facebook. I'm like, I'm sitting here in a parking lot and I don't want to do this, but I think I'm going to do this. Like, please tell me not to do this, you know? And, um, she was like right there. Like she, that moment kind of, Ooh, sorry. <laughs> that moment kind of, um, helped me turn the corner. Finally. Um, I still drank after that. <laughs> that wasn't like, a, you know, the end all be all of everything, but that, that made me realize that, um, it's okay. Like you can ask for help. You can, um, you're not alone, you know? And, um, <laughs> that's a define. That's a, that was a defining moment. It was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, you can have bad days. Like you don't have to cover your bad days with drinking. You can ask for help. You can find a way out of it. That isn't just burying yourself in constant, you know, numbingness basically. <clears throat> and I also had, um, that once, once I figured that out, I had a succession of other moments after that where, um, I could feel it. I could feel myself getting to that, like that really low depressed state. Where... So you're, you're where I call the tr trenches right now, because this is a trench yeah. where you're like, you're, you're fighting your way out. You see mm -hmm. that there's something out there and you're just trying to figure out how to get there. You're right. In the foxhole. Right. Exactly. Like it was like, um, and, and you know, my username on, I, uh, I am sober is 10 seconds at a time um, because uh, that actually funny story. It comes from a, uh, a, a, it's a Netflix series called the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And she long story short, she's a survivor of like some pretty intense trauma and her, her way of getting through it is to just do something for 10 seconds and then just keep doing that thing for 10 seconds, like over and over. So, so if you break it down into like really small manageable pieces of time, um, you know, you just keep doing that. And I was like, that's perfect. <laughs> like, that's exactly what I have to do to get through these cravings some days and um, just take it 10 seconds at a time and then do those over again and then keep doing it and then keep doing it. And um, yeah, like there, there's nothing more, you know, trenchy <laughs> arena about that it's just like one you're fighting for your life you're fighting for your sobriety in every single moment and, well, it's, um, it's it's really a war mm -hmm. in your mind it's a war yeah yeah and it was it was really tough sometimes um because this was also during you know right when covid was peaking and there were a lot of really stressful changes going on at my job and at work um and uh you know it's it's hard enough being in a society where you know that there's a pandemic around you at all times but you know when you work at a hospital you you have to care for people who are known to have it you see it firsthand like it's my job as a ct technologist i um 
we, we do a lot of scans on people's lungs because COVID is a respiratory disease, right? So you, you see exactly how much it fucks up your lungs. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. Like what, what my wife almost died of ARDS. Yeah. She was, she was incubated Mm -hmm. in 2006. um, The mortality rate was 50%. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They've come a long way since 2006, and it and as uh, in your job, you're seeing those cobwebs in the lungs, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and COVID has a really unique pattern. Like it doesn't look like anything else that I've seen, and because it's it's 2021, so I graduated in 2010, so I've been doing this quite a while already. Um, and uh, it was it was new. It was really it was a really intense year last year. And, um, in a way though, like that also contributed to me getting sober because I, the way I was living, I was going to work hungover a lot of times. Um, you know, just, just depressed, just barely surviving. And like with that added stress of, of COVID and the pandemic, like it was either make or break. Like I, I could not continue to function professionally in, in that vein that I had been being, constantly feeling like shit all the time um so uh yeah it 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 was and I was quarantined twice um I didn't ever actually end up getting COVID but in the beginning they were very very careful about um you know if you had any symptoms of any kind they were like just go home and be away from the patients you know for so I ended up having to do that at two two separate points and the last time I did I basically this would have been April. So right before I joined, I joined IAS April, 2020, I basically used my free time to just drink every day. And, um, I, at the end of it all, I just, I felt even worse than when I went in. It just, it kept becoming clearer and clearer to me that I was slowly killing myself, you know? Um, there, there's also like a weird dichotomy too, because a lot of the patients we serve are, you know, at end stage, uh, liver disease from addiction. And, um, I know exactly what that looks like on a scan too, how big and ugly and fatty your liver gets, how you have ascites. Ascites is when you have like all this extra fluid in your abdomen because your liver can't process everything uh, efficiently. So you end up looking like you're pregnant. You have like a beach ball and they have to do, it's called a uh, paracentesis where they literally poke a needle and drain out like gallons and gallons of fluid and like I've seen all of this all of this so many times and I always just told myself I'm not that bad you know I can keep drinking but now it's amazing because I see these people and I'm just like I am so glad that I am not on that path anymore <laughs> like it's it's a huge relief I used to really hate I mean not hate but be very uncomfortable caring for people who were in end stays addiction because it was, it, it was like my future staring me in the face, you know, and I didn't, I didn't want to admit that, but. And what you've now, seen through your whole career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Many, many, many times, many times. And it's, it's people who are young too, like in their late thirties, not that much older than me have, have died from liver failure. Um, you know, it, it doesn't discriminate really. Um, like we've talked about and it's, I can't describe the relief of knowing that I'm fully and completely taking care of myself now. Like that's a very novel, you know, just kind of simple um, 
concept. So all this is blowing true. up. All this is blowing up. You've got your fiance. You don't want to. Um, you're tired of not knowing what you're saying to him. Um, your work. You got. You have COVID. With everything that's going on with COVID, mm-hmm. everything is just coming to an end. Yeah. And then in that group, you saw that I am sober. Mm-hmm. You got in here and then you, so you reset what the first six months? Uh, probably the first four. Um, I, I think the longest streak I had in the first four months was about 14 or 15 days. Um, but honestly, I, it's going to sound weird, but like I had, I had one moment that kind of like switch in my brain and what I had really needed to do that I didn't know that I needed to do was confront my mom about some of her drinking habits because I would not by any stretch of the imagination call her a problem drinker or an alcoholic like it, she she very much has it under control but there were enough times in my life where I knew for a fact that she was drunk and out of control and one of those times was right before I decided to quit drinking. I'd had her and my dad over for dinner and um, she downed a bottle of Pinot Grigio of the whole thing in about 45 minutes in front of me. And I'm like, I saw myself. I'm like, that's what I do. Like, holy shit. Like that's me, you know? And um, so I, I tried to go over and talk to her about it. And I'm like, do you think you've ever had a problem? Like, do you think this is something that I could have you know, picked up from you at some point in my life. Like I just wanted, I wanted some sort of answer for like how I ended up like this, you know, like what was it genetic? Was it in my family, blah, blah, blah. And she did not give me anything that I wanted. She was like, no, I am, I'm completely in control. Like you are very different from me. And, you know, in a lot of ways she's right, but I, I needed to hear that I, I wouldn't get that from her. I, I just accepted that this is something I needed to figure out on my own. And it was, it was like a switch was flipped. I went 44 days after that and I had one more reset and I know exactly why that reset happened because um, in all of my communication with my fiance, he, he's, he really likes smoking weed, which is fine. Um, but he, he's not a problem drinker either, but he enjoys like cocktails in the evening, you know, And I would see him doing this constantly, like smoking and drinking and smoking and drinking. And I just got really bitter and jealous for a little while that I had to, you know, not. You could and you can't. Exactly. Exactly. Which is a terrible thing. And that's not how I feel all the time. But when you're first getting sober and all you want to do is drink, like to have someone in your face like that all the time. Oh my God. It was, it was hard. So I had done all of this amazing progress in 44 days. And that one day I just, and something I was watching on TV, everyone was drinking all of the triggers, just one. And I like robot, like autopilot went to my usual store, got two bottles of wine and down them all in like 45 minutes. And I got puke drunk because I guess by that point I had cut back enough that my tolerance had started to go down. So two bottles was like, way too much for me and um but then again and the weirdest part after that was I woke up the next morning and I did not have any guilt I did not have any shame I was not beating myself up I woke up and I was like that was it I'm done 
that was the last one. Like <laughs> I knew exactly where I had to go and I was going to do it. And that was just over six months ago and I haven't gone back. <laughs> Congratulations. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, it feels really good to, to give back to people too. Um, I, I often go back to day zero posts and, you know, just try and offer an encouraging word because that's how people found me. Like that's, I think, um, Kali did Monica. Um, well, let's do this because uh -huh. I always like to get in and we haven't really got there to give some sobriety in what you're doing now. All yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is the good part. This is yes. what all of it has led to, which is amazing. And, yes. um, I know everyone, like, it's been really interesting to follow people on, on their individual timelines. You know, I feel like certain people kind of hit that aha moment at different points. For me, that was very much at a hundred days. Like, I don't know, like I, all of my foundations that I had laid leading up to that point, And even with all my previous resets too, like each one of them taught me something. Um, I, I was very diligent at. That's a great point right yeah. there that I would like to make because sure. a lot of people think resets are failure mm -hmm. and Todd is doing a series. I don't know if you've been on the website at all mm -hmm. and um, with mindset growth or fixed. Um, he talks about this in there where this isn't failure. This is learning because a lot of people end up resetting back at day zero and they feel like a failure. So yeah. I just want to make that point. A reset isn't failure, it's learning. Very true, very true. And I, I also had to figure out that the emotion of shame is, is the most useless and paralyzing emotion ever to exist. It serves no purpose no. at all. Um, all it does is make you sit there and hate yourself. And the way that I figured out to combat shame was to literally tell everyone what I was ashamed of. Like just, it's like, I picture like just having a collection of, of like objects. Do you read Brene of. Brown? I don't know, but I should. I know. I've heard well, a lot of her stuff. She, yeah. You're just, you're talking exactly what she talks about. I mean, really? you're, yes, because yeah. shame can't live in the darkness. Exactly. Yeah. When you expose it, it dies. Yeah. And so like, I, I see people who are, you know, they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then they just go back into their hole. And I just want to like, be like, come on, like, it's okay. No one is going to judge you. I mean, and, and furthermore, if they do judge you, they have done you a favor because you now know that this person does not deserve to be in your life. You can say, all right, you showed me your true colors by, you know, and that's, that's something I used to fear too, was people's judgment. But now I'm just like, you know, I'm going to tell you my truth in and of itself, unfiltered, raw. And if you see that truth and you decide it's not something you want, that is totally your choice. More respect to you, bye. You know, but if, if you learn something from that, if, if you can relate somehow, then that's an amazing gift. I, I saw one of those, um, those so little you're, you're exposing your shame now, whatever shame yeah. you felt you're exposing. Exactly. By being honest, um, one of those little motivational things on the I am sober app, you know, you get those daily motivations. It said, yeah. honesty is the highest form of intimacy. And I think that is so true. Um, because like what you're telling people like the, the most raw basic aspects of yourself and 
in sobriety, if you just do that and connect with people and you give back too, like you, by being honest with yourself, you can be honest with other people. You can do stuff like this, you know, and like, like I must, and, um, you know, everyone else who's been on the podcast too. And, uh, it's just, it, it compounds on itself. Like once you start, it's like this snowball effect that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And you just, I have some days where I like look around and I'm like, how in the hell did I get so lucky? Like, (laughs) it's really, really intense because like, I, I don't even recognize myself. Like, can I tell you something about what you're doing right there? Uh And we can get back to another one of Todd's um, blogs that he does on if it's, if it uh, fires together, it's wired together. Mm -hmm. By you looking around and saying, wow, how did I get here? How did it get so, I'm in such a, a good place is what you're doing is you're building. And I can just get chills because you said that. You're building this new pathway, right? The old pathway is the addiction. And that was the super highway your mind used to uh, work off of. You couldn't even get home without your two bottles of wine or three every day. Now you're on this new pathway. And every time you're thinking those good thoughts about how great sobriety is, you're building on that new highway, that new pathway in your mind that you're on now. And I just want to make that you know, what, that is really cool what you're doing and it really builds on your foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's this quote that I love, love, love. Um, it was from, um, the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. I've read a lot of his stuff. Um, even before sobriety, I was always interested in his work, but, um, it's, it goes something like, um, uh, the light from one candle does not wane when it's lighting other candles so like happiness doesn't decrease by being shared so it's it's like the only thing that you can share and you get more of by sharing it you don't lose it and i feel like that's that's in sobriety too and now you're happy because you want to be not because you're expected to be isn't that exactly yeah yeah like i'm happy because it's, it's, it's natural. It's, it's me being myself and not trying to avoid, you know, judgment or anything. And even if someone does judge me or something, like I I look at it very objectively because what, what I really failed to realize for most of my adult life so far is the way people treat you is a reflection of who they are as a person. It's not a reflection of you. It's, it's their habits they've learned and, and the way that they perceive things like they, they are telling you when they're treating you like garbage, that they're a garbage person and you should avoid them, you know? So, um, well, even be, but before you were taught to be grateful, right. Mm-hmm. And then you went through your relationships, always just trying to be happy because that's how that you're expected to be happy then. Yes. So we're looking at two different happinesses here. We're looking at the happiness that you did for all those years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even happy. And it, you were so happy. You had to kill that happiness with the wine. Right. Right. Yeah. And now you're, you're genuinely, and, it, and you're, this is genuine. Genuine. And you don't need anything. No. No, it's like, why, why would I drink to numb anything? Like, there's nothing I want to numb. Like I have, I have bad days, but I, I'm allowed to do that. 
I'm allowed to have emotions that aren't always positive and it doesn't make me like a dramatic, shitty, sad, boring person. Like I'm just a human. It comes so, with the package of being a human. <laughs> I've seen you right here since we've been sitting together, right? Uh-huh. And then I've seen you with the burden of your story, how it was make you look you I, I saw you with wearing that, right? And then yeah. right now you're like glowing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because we're talking about where I'm at now and right. where I'm at now, like, is so far from where I used to be. And what's what's really exciting for me is like, um, I really want to start a family as soon as my fiance is here and like I want to have kids. And um, I just I, I really am excited for what all of this lessons and, and all the work I've done on myself um, can do for my future and like my future kids. And um it's just like, I, I have like the entire world, like, <laughs> like open to me. And it's amazing. Like I have my house, you know, um, homeowner, I have a great job. I have like a career I've been in for 12 years. All my student loans were paid off. Like everything that's been kind of holding me back up until this point is just, it's all just like resolved. And it's not like everything's perfect. I mean, I don't think there is a perfect. Well, no, there's but. still things that you're going to have to battle through but you're already yeah. way ahead because you started it at the end of your recovery figuring out all this shit but there's still yep. things that you have to deal with sure yeah yeah which is you're way ahead of the game i i hope so i really hope so i i have this this trend in my life where i i feel like i suck at stuff for a really really long time like longer than the average person but then but then there's a moment where like all the sucking has paid off and then all of a sudden I'm just like a rocket and like all the sucking happened and now I'm the rocket and like well you just got back from a, a little vacation right I did that helps too I'm in a very good mood still because <laughs> right. I was off work for 17 days <laughs> and you camped uh out with yourself you and your dog right yeah yeah I, I saw the mountains I saw the beach um yeah in terms of giving back and sobriety one thing I've always wanted to do remember how I told you about camping at my elementary school and how it like gave me a love for nature um I wanted just to get a setup that I could just like put in my car and I just go and so the first four months I spent sober I camped at eight different state parks in four months I just I threw myself into it and the ritual of just like setting up the tent, enjoying nature, like being quiet, you know, stepping away from technology, uh, just, just existing. And like, you have being, a cool ass hammock. I do have a cool ass hammock. Yes. Yes. And, uh, that's, there's nothing more relaxing than sitting in that thing and just letting the breeze just, you know, woo, just move you back and forth. Um, but yeah, I, it, it was, camping was really crucial to my recovery, very much so. Um, it taught me that I could do things myself. Like, you would not believe how many strange looks I got, like, trying to set up this huge-ass tent, like me, this small little girl. <laughs> like, like I, people would stop and be like, do you need help? I'm like, nah, no, I'm good. Like, I got to figure it out. It's fine. So it was just, it was like proving to myself that I could do it on my own, and I didn't need anyone. And, and I was good at it, too, you know? So yeah way um, cool way cool yeah. so now um with this podcast you're giving back mm -hmm. and now you're you also are giving back in into ias mm -hmm. and it sounds like you you have there's your other with other groups and facebook and stuff too 
Yeah, a little bit. I also have, um, I'm an admin uh, on a Discord server. It's kind of like a WhatsApp, like a chat room, essentially. And um, there are all people from IAS who have joined there. We just joined it because we needed more like instantaneous support, you know, rather than just like messaging on IAS and stuff like, and people, it's been around for about eight months now. And um, people who have been there the whole time, like we have a really tight, amazing group of people. And, uh, you know, people come on and they say like, oh, I had a bad day or I had a reset or um, I feel like I really want to drink right now. You know, I just need to vent instead of drinking. And like every single one of those moments matters. Like every single one can be that one defining moment that changes, you know, someone's sobriety. And um, I'm just I'm just really glad that people are using it. And you guys have voice messaging. You guys communicate differently than. Yeah, most of it's text, but we do have like voice hangouts and stuff too. Yeah. Um, Some but, of us yeah. are doing the same thing with Telegram. Right, right. And I did, I joined Polly and Corinna's group, um, one of them. Um, I haven't been on much lately just because my Discord server takes up a lot of my time. But um, but yeah, it's any any single way you can find to to draw yourself out of that shame cave and just, just connect and, you know, find other people and tell, like share your story and listen to other stories. Like it, it all matters every single second. Like that you need to celebrate your recovery, like, like a little kid celebrating, like a victory, just get excited about it. You know, just, yay, I'm amazing. It's awesome. And right. more people need to do that rather than just like, Oh, I'm only on day two. It's like, fuck yeah, you're on day two. Right. Exactly. Good job. You know, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't even get to a day two. Oh know, yeah. For three yeah. years on my own. I crawled into IAS. Mm-hmm. Same. And, you know, and, but as you get sober, you find out you have other issues <clears throat> like I'm oh, yeah. finding for myself now, believe me, just because I've started this podcast doesn't mean that I've got my shit together because I don't. It's all right. I, I don't think anyone does. And it, by the way, that's, I think it's amazing that you're being so like transparent and open about that, because that's going to really help a lot of people too. Men, mental illness is so underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed in so many cases and, just well, keep talking about it. It's amazing. I'm, we're gonna, I'm trying to work on a, on a, I'm going to do a podcast just about what I've been through recently. Because mm-hmm. I always thought my, I always thought this was just alcohol. Yeah. And yeah. now I'm finding out because the alcohol is gone. I still have these behaviors. I'm not like I need to be locked down mental illness, but I have episodes that I, I go into that I can trace all the way back to my childhood. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I'm seeing right now that I've kind of, I have to like disconnect a little bit, get, figure this out because if not, there's, I'm going to just hurt more people. Right. And 10, I, I started doing what I'm doing to help people. These episodes that I get into leaves me just like the alcohol. I wake mm-hmm. up, I'm ashamed. I, I get depressed because just last weekend, I hurt somebody that, that I've been trying to encourage. And I hurt them. And I'm like, okay, I got to step back a little bit and I got to figure this shit out. I don't even know if I'm good in groups anymore because I think that groups trigger me just looking because my mom's like really mental health, uh, her education. So yesterday we were going over these things and I had never even told her this stuff. Well, we didn't talk about it because I did not believe in uh, mental illness. Right, right until three weeks ago. 
mm-hmm. when I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? It gives you power to name it, though. Like, it gives you, you're like, I understand this now. And you have a path forward on how to how to handle it. It's, it's a very powerful thing. Sure. It is. And it's trying to sort out, okay, well, do am I bipolar? Okay, well, what kind of traits of bipolar do I have? Right. Am I... My mom's like, well, you know what? You have PTSD on top of PTSD on top of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Do I? Well, let me go look. And then <laughs> I start seeing, do I have all forms of PTSD? No, I don't. Right, right. But I do have. So now it's a new journey to figure this shit out. And I'm going to mm-hmm. do it and I'm going to share it. When I woke up at one o'clock this morning with my wife, 10, uh, we talked for an hour and a half. Did never told her all this stuff and she's like wow wow so and that's what all of us have to do and you're going to find yourself here too Tim mm-hmm. where there's things that happen I don't know if it's going to cause like behaviors like it has with me met some mental illness or whatever all we got to do is stay sober right yep yep and then push through it whatever it is um and if like for me I'm going to have to like maybe disconnect a little bit, not all the way, just a little bit so that I don't go on a manic episode and blow up friggin' IAS. You're, right? you're allowed to have your moments where you feel things and do what's necessary for you also. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Like it's, you know how I was saying, I always have to be happy and, you know, maintain the peace. It's like, you're, I'm allowed to withdraw and take care of myself. Like that's, that's a simple concept, but I think a lot of us struggle with that. And I'm glad you're doing that yourself too and if somebody else um i don't know if somebody else is going through that that's just why i wanted to bring that up that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever we have to do to get through whatever issues we have then let's just do it sober yes yes and just support each other with love and not judgment you know just love people where they're at and just wish the best for them and and sometimes we may lose some support along the way. I know that because of last weekend, I lost somebody that uh, I, I cared for and was trying to help. I, you know, I tried to reach out. It didn't work. So I'm just like, well, that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just keep pushing forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what are your plans now? Um, well, I just hit six months. So um, actually next I was trying to get it on right around my six month milestone, but next month I'm uh, commemorating this, not just sobriety, but like my entire journey back to finding myself with the tattoo. (laughs) And I found a really great artist um, local and uh, put a deposit down. So um, I'm probably going to be posting pictures of that on IAS as I get it done. Oh, you know what? On our website, I should put a wall up. Well, oh yeah sober tattoos right you totally should yeah <laughs> that would be great right because lilo he's getting one yeah, yeah. you know because he's a, a rock star <laughs> right and he's got this <laughs> yeah that, oh my god yeah that's funny um but yeah in addition to that my next my next goal is like is fitness and losing weight i i let my body go a lot while i was drinking and i just ate and didn't give a shit about myself whatsoever. So I'm trying to get back to being like a healthy, active 
person. I've actually lost 20 pounds since January. So wow, congratulations. Um, thank you. And I'm, I'm trying to lose another 30 or so by the end of the year to get back to my goal weight. So um, it's going pretty well. And I just, I love feeling good. I love feeling healthy and knowing that I'm on the right path and things are looking up. It's really great. I'm so glad that you got with me and, and you did this interview. Yeah, and thank I'm, you. I'm so I'm so encouraged by like you and Todd. You're both like he's 34, you're 30. Well, you're almost 33. About to be 33. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically yeah. 33. But you're young and you're doing this. And now we got our son with us. He's 29. Mm-hmm. And hopefully he's he's here today and he's doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably doesn't like me waking his ass up like I do, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, well. he's he's sober today. And awesome. you guys are sober and you, you younger generation. I just think it's awesome what yeah. you guys are doing. Thank you. And thank Congratulations. You Thanks. You too. You too, for sure. Anything else you want to say before we close? Um, no, just I really love you guys. And just thank you to every single person who's ever given me a tiny sliver of time or energy or love. It, it all adds up and it all matters. So thank you. And yeah. thank you, IAS, yes. for building this platform where we've all found each other. Mm-hmm. So, Agreed. 10, 10 seconds at a time. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, and Drifter. Thank you, everybody. This is the Sobertown Podcast. And come visit us at SobertownPodcast.com, our website. Jump on that sober train and ride. Choo-choo. Right to the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety and pour the poison down the sink. Right, Jen? Pour the poison down the sink. Thank you.